Hola. Hola, Charlito. Charlito. Hola, Charlie. My brother Kalo. Hey the, man, what's up? The filmmaker, the teacher. Are we rolling? The father. I think so. Yeah, man, let's roll. Okay, very cool. My old roommate. What's up, man? Oh my God, we've been through so much. <laughs> we've been through it all, man. Thank you for having me. The wars. The successes. The successes. Come on, <laughs> The man. celebrations. The glasses are half full, Charlie. Glasses <laughs> half full. Well, congratulations on what you're doing. I'm a huge fan, and uh, I am super humbled and excited to be here just to see you and chat with you and kind of reconnect. Uh, so it's very fitting that we're doing it over a podcast because... Uh, uh, I'm a huge fan of what you're you're doing right now, so thank you. Thank you, brother. And you know, whenever I thought about doing a podcast, you were the first one, or one of the first per- people that I've thought about bringing on to the show, only because you're about your work, man. You're you're about this life of just like going after what you believe in, going after your dreams, um, wholeheartedly, man. You really put yourself, you sacrifice flesh, you know. Your, your own flesh to, you know, get things done. And um, and why not hear your story? Why not allow others to hear your story? The way that I've witnessed you, you know, actually, uh, you know, make it happen. So thanks for coming through, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you make it seem so medieval, you know, what, what I've gone through as an independent filmmaker. But you, you're right. You've seen it. It's, uh, you know, as cliche as it sounds, it's blood, sweat, and tears. You, you certainly need to to love it um, if you are an outsider coming in, right? When I mean an outsider, someone that isn't necessarily kind of born into the industry or someone that doesn't uh, or did not have the means or the resources to um, to really fund my own projects in a way that uh, some of my counterparts have, uh, have been fortunate. Um, you know, there's always a saying that filmmaking is for, you know, the film brats. Uh, parents are producers, writers, directors. Or kids with uh, trust funds, right. uh, and I'm not none of the above. So um, as a result of that, there's been a little bit of sacrifice, emotional, psychological, financial, uh, and certainly physical, because filmmaking is a very physical experience. And I always quote uh, Werner Herzog, who uh, who's a documentary filmmaker, a great legend, uh, who has always stressed how physical um, and painful the filmmaking process really is. Uh, And he captures it very well in not only his own style of filmmaking, but certainly he articulates that uh, in some of his interviews. It's a painstaking process that, uh, you know, it's only fruitful for those people that really kind of enjoy it in a very uh, kind of masochistic way. Uh, But, you know, I I digress. I I love what I do, right? (laughs) But I think that's important because a lot of people don't know the the blush, wind, and tears. And, you know, just to be specific, when I say he sacrifices flesh, like, I lived with this guy. And this guy, there were so many all-nighters that he would pull, you know, and he would still work during the day uh, just to get a project out. And, uh, And, you know, again, people need to hear that because you didn't get to where you're at right now without those those like miracles that you were doing in your room just 
coffee after coffee, peanut butter and jelly sandwich at two o'clock in the oh, yeah. morning, you know, um, just to make it happen. So again, thanks, man. So how's the family? We're doing well. We're doing well. We've been, um, you know, we've been in quarantine like everyone else has. Uh, right. We've been fortunate. Uh, my wife and I have been fortunate enough to to work from home. We're both educators. Uh, Anne-Marie is a speech therapist and I teach film. Uh, this past year I was teaching film at the high school of art and design. Right. So, uh, you know, I make films and I teach film, right? So that's essentially my, my line of work. Uh, so when we transition to remote learning, um, you know, I kind of followed that wave uh, and, and supported the high school of art and design, which um, it's a really wonderful public school in Midtown Manhattan, one of the premier art public schools in the country. Uh, we have an incredible, you know, group of faculty members and school leaders there and some phenomenal artists, young minds, young artists, and certainly some incredible young up-and-coming filmmakers that are coming out of the film program. Um, I work alongside one of my best friends and just an incredible human being, Hanan Harkel, who built the film program from, from the ground up many years ago. And they asked me to come on this year to support the program that was expanding you know, and I didn't know what I was getting myself into. You know, I hadn't been in the classroom full time in, in, in several years since uh, leaving my post over at the high, at the Frank Sinatra School of the Arts, where I ran the film program there for a few years. Uh, so it was uh, challenging, right, to go back full time and certainly um, mind blowing in many ways when the pandemic hit and when we had to transition, um, especially as a film teacher. Uh, you know, working at a very high level with some really fantastic students that are essentially going to some of the best film programs around the country. Um, essentially, th rethinking the, 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 the format or the means to make films, which is inherently a collaborative process that requires people. Right. Right. Yeah. Working people in different, closing together. Yeah. Closely working together, intimately working together. Uh, many times, essentially on top of one another, right? right. Uh, we all we had we essentially had to rethink uh, that approach uh, and empower our students, right? To to say, you know what, we can still make films uh, from 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 our own homes. So that was a a, a bizarre change, but um, I think that you know to piggyback off what you were saying earlier, kind of referencing uh, the 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 backstory of how I became a filmmaker, how I kind of evolved into this into into this art form. You know, those struggles that I endured, uh, um, you know, in my 20s, uh, going into my 30s, I'm 40 now, I, I, I kind of encapsulated all those experiences and shared that with my students and said, you know what, it's time to, to kind of like strap on your boots and roll up your sleeves and, and make films by any means necessary. Right. And I was, you know, I was talking to them very candidly and very frankly. And, uh, you know, I'm very, very impressed and surprised with what they, what they achieved. So... Because the, the whole industry is being affected due to COVID, right? Um, and, and now I think you're seeing these outrageous expenses uh, that filmmakers have to cover uh, in order to follow COVID protocol. You know, I think Jurassic Park spent approximately $9 million to, to bring people back and finish the film. You know, mm -hmm. what is this doing to small filmmakers, that do not have that budget, that do not have these big corporations backing them? Like, how are they able to make their films and yet follow protocol? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, um, I didn't know about the Jurassic Park thing, but more and more stories like that are kind of emerging, right? I'm reading on, like, Hollywood Reporter or IndieWire that, you know, um, 
studio productions are not tacking on millions of dollars just to, uh, you know, kind of be in compliance with right. like state and federal COVID um, protocols and procedures. They have the money to do it, so they should do it, right? right? Um, certainly, independent filmmakers don't have those luxuries. So a, a greater question is how are indie filmmakers that are essentially funding their own films or raising capital on their own, um, how are they moving forward with those productions that, that require an even more so kind of grassroots approach? Um, and you, you don't have the funds or the means to like house actors for weeks on end. Right. Right. You know, I got to say, I wouldn't want to be in that position right now. And this is after making three independent films. Right. Uh, we just finished our third film, my brother and I. Uh, and LPZ our team, Media. LPZ Great Media. Great job. Yeah. yeah. Um, Paradise City is our third film. Um, and, and we shot it and we went into principal photography back in 2018. And then finished the edit uh, late 2019. Right, So it's a slow process because we were kind of piecemealing the budget and, and some resources as we were filming it. But that was a massive project for us. Right. Massive. The idea of kind of stopping mid-stride before shooting Paradise City, if it were today, we wouldn't have been able to do it. Like, there were too many variables, too many moving parts. I mean, it was already, independent films are already a liability from the beginning. Right. Um, and I'm talking about, like, serious, professional, legitimate independent films. I'm not talking about, like, your running gun student film. Like, legitimate professional student, I mean, uh, independent films just are swimming upstream already, right? You're going against the grain. Uh, you're being very rebellious in many ways, right? Um, Unexpected be, cost all the time. Yeah, I mean, but and then having to tack on those, um, those funds, I mean, I'm sure filmmakers are finding a way to do it. And I'm sure we probably would have figured out a way. You know, we, we've been shooting um, uh, since phase four uh, uh, kind of took, went into effect in New York State. And, uh, you know, we did our thing, you know, but I realized that it was just an, an additional cost, an additional line, an additional amount of um, focus. I had to, for example, we shot in a studio a couple of weeks ago for just like a new business commercial for a startup company. And, you know, I never had to hire a medical assistant. I had to onboard somebody this time around to do temperature checks, to put up signs, to constantly clean, to provide masks. It was great. You know, we, we, we followed those uh, guidelines uh, provided by the governor of New York. Uh, but it's just like another stress, right. you know, that you have that's kind of looming over your head. Uh, and it just would have been impossible to, to, to shoot Paradise uh, in the context that we're in right now. However, what's beautiful about it is that filmmakers are probably the most resourceful and innovative people on the planet. I mean, our job, essentially, filmmakers from the highest level, right, from... The Scorsese's, you know, to the Oliver Stones, all the way down to the LPZ Media's and student films and below, right? Our job is to essentially come up with solutions. We come up with solutions, right? I, my mantra is that filmmaking is essentially dealing with Murphy's Law, right? When something can go wrong, it will go wrong, right? So knowing that, it's doing everything you can in pre-production to essentially curtail those devastating or or kind of Armageddon moments that can right. shut down the production, right? Shutting down a production is a non-negotiable. You cannot, that cannot happen. What's a, what's a number one way that a production can be shut down? It, well, okay, so at the independent level, right? right. So again, I'm, I'm an independent filmmaker. I'm a film 
maker. I've done some union stuff, uh, but for the most part, my brother and I have kind of taken it upon ourselves to break into the industry. In a Shout more... out to John. <laughs> yeah. John. John Lopez. Yeah, my brother's out in L.A. Uh, brilliant writer, director, producer. Um, so, you know, we kind of took it upon ourselves to kind of do it in a very romantic, old school way, which really doesn't happen anymore. To kind of break into the industry, um, and you know we have no regrets. That's our approach, right? Um, so, in in the independent context, what are some potential things that can go wrong? Uh, you know, you you may not have permits for certain things, right? right. So the cops may shut you down. Um, you may run out of money, <laughs> right? Um, you um, you know there might be some like potential, you know, hazards on set uh, that, you know, are kind of out of your control, whether, because a lot of the times when you're in an independent film, you're shooting in practical locations, meaning that you don't have the funding to kind of, you know, rent out an entire studio at Kaufman or at Silver Cup to build an entire facility or an entire, you know, environment. So you actually find those locations, right? But like, you know, what if you're in a location that you found and they're like, there are variables in there that you kind of overlooked, right? Right, right. uh, and again, not to say that, you know, again, the reason why I'm here is because we did a really solid job over the course of 10, 15 years to avoid catastrophes. Right. Right. And that's why we are still here making films. Exactly. Uh, but, but you know, a lot of filmmakers make mistakes, man. And, and that can ruin a career. That certainly can ruin a project. See, the thing is funny to me when you say that you have to go in there knowing that anything can happen. So you have to be. You know, you have to be intentional because you're intentional about creating the film and, and you already have a vision, but also you're reactionary um, because things are happening out of your control and you have to be okay with it. A lot of people are not okay with it. A lot of people get panic attacks. A lot of people defer to someone that may not have the experience and, that's, and therefore you react wrongly. But but good for you. Good for you that uh, you've uh, paid very, your dues. It's and very stressful, man. You, you know, like, survive and, that. But the thing is that and many independent filmmakers out there that know the, the, the stress that it involves to not, not only prepare for a film, but to actually be out there in the field, you know, you as the producer, as the director, as the people making the film, you certainly have to go in there with that flexible mindset. You have to understand that you're going to encounter millions of problems. So knowing that ahead of time uh, will essentially ease that, that anxiety. Right. Um, but also, no, more importantly, man, you know, and I learned this from the advertising side, you know, John, who worked at Gray for many years, and many of our producers are advertising filmmakers or, or copywriters or art directors. You know, there's something, there, there's a culture of advertising and production where, where you cannot show your stress or your level of anxiety to others because the worst thing that can happen is when a client sees the production stressed out. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have to essentially keep your cool and be soft spoken and be just kind of reserved and be methodical about making those adjustments. Because the last thing you want is your client, who's usually on set with you as well, freaking out as well. Right. So I learned that through advertising and I kind of applied that to my independent filmmaking as as a producer where, you know, the police are showing up and, you know, this happened. This actually happened where I anticipated that, and we had permits, but we were in a hostile environment. And the, you know, the local politics, essentially, they were not doing their job in essentially informing different departments of the permits that we had. And I just had a certain vibe with the, what we were filming. And I kind of 
foresaw something happening. So mm-hmm. what I ended up doing was I kind of took myself away as the producer on set while my brother was directing this important scene for our film. I kind of took a couple of steps back, almost awaiting for for the authorities to arrive. Right. And when they arrived, I met them like maybe a football field away from the set. Mm. They didn't even get close to set because the last thing I want are my actors panicking, right. my brother freaking out, the director, my cinematographer and camera team wondering what the heck's going on. Right. And I dealt with it about 100 yards away, you yeah. know? And, and it, but it's like knowing that, you know? And it takes years to like have that kind of uh, wherewithal. Right. Um, uh, and, but, you know, it, it's stressful. It yeah. is. You know, because I go home after that and I curl up into the fetal position and cry myself to sleep. That's funny because when I see you do it, you know, and I've seen you plenty of times just navigate through this chaos of, of you know, big project happening, yet uh, small, unpredictable things that can change the path that you were, that, that you intended that day for a specific scene. And, and you handle it as if you were born to do this. Mm. Like you were born to to keep people calm. You were born to like motivate these actors to like give it their best or to tap into an emotion they weren't displaying before, right? And and it makes the scene a lot more powerful. I saw that yeah, I saw that with uh the Hudson Tribes. Mm-hmm. I saw that also, which you know there were many emotional scenes in Hudson Tribes mm-hmm. and I want you to get into Hudson Tribes in a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw that in Paradise City as well, Paradise City, somewhat of a controversial uh, movie as well. So controversy is not, is not foreign to you, right? Mm. Actually, you made your first film in Cuba. Mm. <laughs> no, this was before Obama. Yeah. This was, yeah. you know, when nobody was going to Cuba. No, no, nobody. This was when you were scared to smoke a Cuban cigar. Yeah, you couldn't. Yeah. You know, and, oh. um, and you made it happen through... Your graduate program? Yeah, yeah. So we can go back, right? That's why I started my, my career. Um, but yeah, I know just before we move to that, it's interesting because you know me for many years. I've known you forever, Charlie, right? right. And that's not my personality. I'm kind of on edge all the time. <laughs> and I, you know, and like, you know, I can get hot headed or I can get flustered very easily. And for some reason, I can't behave that way. Granted, you know, there are people probably listening to this that like say, oh, Kev, I've seen Kev like bug out on set before right Right. but that's very rare because I can't afford to do that because I love I love what we're doing so much that you kind of have to force yourself to behave in a certain way in order to get the job done right you really have to kind of coach yourself and change yourself in many ways you have to become better I think that's the moral of that story is like identify something that is strong enough to make you better right right and uh I'm still going through that struggle. I'm still going through that process, right? Um, I'm, you know, I'm going to be making films f- forever, I guess, right? Like, until I'm but, done. But, but making film wasn't really, you know, based on what I know of you, yeah. that wasn't your no. first career choice. No, 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 yeah. Right? That was something yeah. that in the fourth quarter I, you I, said, I, you know what, this is a passion of mine, yeah. and I'm going to pursue it despite yeah. what my father thinks. Well, let's go Tell back. About let's film. go back, right? Because many of my students ask me, like, and I, and I, and I, when they're, like, slacking off, I'm looking at them, I'm like, I didn't really fall into this until, like, I was in my, like, mid-20s mm-hmm. in grad school, you know? And they're, like, 15, 16, 17, like, making films. And I'm like, if I would have had, I always say that, you know, I'm like the older guy, yeah. like the wise old man. I, and I stopped myself I when I say that. I used to walk to school <laughs> when I was your age. No, but you know what? Like I learned, I picked it up 
I fell into film in my mid-20s. I mean, it's almost, that's 15, 15, 20 years ago now, right? Early mid-20s, right? When I was in college in Buffalo, right? And we, we can go into that. But there is, but I've tried to make the connection with my connection to film even earlier. Because there is like this weird, bizarre experience in my life through my teens where the thought of making films just like wasn't, anything that was was extremely abstract it wasn't even a thought mm. never even cared for it why was that why was that so I, so you know i'm reflecting on this right and i and i'm identifying a couple of things a couple of moments in my life right um one thing that my myself my brother my sister and we're all kind of in the film business in many ways my sister's an actress uh really talented she was uh pink sneakers in uh in uh, the star show on power she's done a bunch of other really cool right. things shout out to leslie yeah 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 she was actually a little f- a trivia fact about leslie leslie uh who's probably listening in um uh she uh was uh, the body double to j-lo when j-lo got into all that controversy when j-lo was supposed the, to be in the Bronx, but yeah. she wasn't it was my sister leslie lopez <laughs> in the bronx all right so for the record another lopez was in the bronx right gotcha, not the gotcha. jennifer lopez though um, and that was really exciting. That was fun. That was fun. So, you know, Leslie's kind of, you know, she does a lot of commercial work, a lot of theater work and stuff like that. And she pops in and out a lot of our films. But, you know, we all, you know, I've talked to my, my brother and sister. I'm like, where did this come from? Right. And, and I think it comes from growing up in the suburbs. Right. I grew up in Rockland County, um, which is like maybe 45 minutes north of Manhattan. Uh, very, very suburban, but diverse community. Uh, and, you know, I grew up with my mom, my dad, and, and, and the house that they bought, right, to kind of, like, shelter us, right, in this little bubble that we lived in, and, uh, you know, Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, going to the movies was, like, a tradition in my life, right, so, and my dad was a big, like, movie buff, my mom wasn't, my mom didn't like it, but she just kind of t- tagged along, right, we would go to dinner, and then we would go check out a movie, and we did that growing up. I mean, we've seen, I've seen, I mean, it's crazy now in light of the fact that, you know, pandemic is here and it's kind of shut down the movie going experience. And even before that, streaming platforms have kind of curtailed that, that, that culture. Right. Um, But I grew up going to the movies, man, and I loved it. And I, and I do remember in middle school, I kind of banded with a couple of middle school buddies of mine and we wrote a screenplay I think a, a friend of mine from school was like dabbling with his mom's video recorder or like the VHS camera. And there was a moment when I was like in eighth grade, seventh, eighth grade, where I just went, I just went nuts and I just wanted to make films. And we made a couple of films, a couple of horror films. I even wrote a screenplay. Really? Like I was bugged out, right? I was really into it. And then I went into high school and then I became a high school person, right? And like, what's a high school person? <laughs> just like school, girls, sports. Okay. Right? Was, no arts. Do you think if there was, first of all, was there an arts program in your high school that could have encouraged or facilitated no, that interest? No, it did not. A great okay. school. It was a, a private, it was a Catholic school, the one Catholic school in, in Rockland County. Right. But, you know, I think growing up in like the 90s, man, it was all about sports. Interesting. It was, I mean, I, I, I did not grow up with a robust arts experience. Right. And, you know, I... I don't regret not having that because I feel like sports fell, uh, filled that void for me, right? It's all about basketball. I mean, it's the Michael Jordan era, right? It's all about basketball. That's why watching that documentary really brought me back, right? Um, uh, uh, basketball, playing soccer. You know, I was a big soccer uh, player in Rockland. My brother, who is, you know, my, my producing partner, 
was one of the best point guards from North Bergen when he was in high school. He was an he was an all county John was an all county in Jersey, right? All county cornerback. I mean, we're all about sports. Right, right. We're all about sports. You know, uh, my dad played professional soccer in Columbia, so that's where we kind of. Put our, a, put our energy. A funny guy. He is. He is. He's like he's a legend, man. He's a legend. Um, he's great. He's but great. you know, the whole time he's like pushing, he's pushing sports, but he's taking us to the movies every right. Sunday. You know, and taking you guys to the movies. Was he ever dropping, you know, seeds like, you know what, Kevin? Maybe you should be a film. Director, no, no, no. <laughs> or maybe you should, maybe you should no. get into acting. No, but he did something better. What did he do? He would talk to us about the movies. Okay. He would okay. dissect them with us. Right, right. He would talk. He would critique them. He would analyze them with us. He would watch them with us. And he was a very eccentric dude, man. You know, he's a you know entrepreneur. He had a couple of businesses um, in Rockland and had some in the city. Um, so he was a hustler. He like worked very hard. You know, he's an immigrant, right? Um, but he was a, a, a very well-read. He still is. You know, he's retired in Colombia, right? He's in his like mid sixties now. You know, I talked to the guy. As much as I can, right? Um, but very eccentric in the sense of like how much he knew in terms of literature, right? Uh, the films that he loved. I remember every morning on the weekends, I would see like a John Wayne movie in black and white playing. I would hear the radio from Columbia coming in, the signal, and then I would see him reading a book or like reading a newspaper all at once. Right. And I'm like, yo, how can you like process all this? And he like he needs to hear from all angles. He would say, right? And then we would watch movies, and he would like break them down with us and he would talk to us about it. He was, he was, a, he was training you to be a producer. I, you know what? He, I always, a director. Say, I always say he would be, because he's such a hustler, man. He like, he's always on the move and he's like, and he mobilizes people, right? He's a businessman. Um, he would, he would have been a fantastic producer, right? If he would have known this, right? So when we started dabbling with the idea of making films, he thought it was hilarious. He was like, you guys are ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. But then when it started becoming real, right? When he started seeing our films, right? Right, because we we're kind of full of crap for a while until you start seeing work. That's when start things started getting real for him. You know, where he now was now reading our screenplays, interacting with John. You know, about like certain things, watching rough cuts. You know, like so it, it's um it's a very organic process, and I think it starts off with my dad, and then it ends off now with my mom. My mom, and my dad split up many years ago. My dad's retired in Colombia. My mom's here in New York in Rockland. Uh, and my mom's an entrepreneur, you know, she's a businesswoman, and she's, like, helped finance some of our work, right? right? And full disclosure, right? Like, you need to have, you need to have that support from family that, like, says, screw it, you know, you guys are crazy enough to do it, you're not going to stop, uh, might as well, you know, contribute in some level. Right, right, you know, and that, and that takes people believing in you, and, um, and sometimes you just, people are, are drawn to that because they see how hard you work and how talented you guys are. You guys really work to be that talented. So um, you. so you're in Buffalo and you're in yeah. grad school. Yeah. And so, first of all, and how did that film come about? Like you all of a sudden get yeah. a, a visa or whatever you get to go to Cuba? No, yeah. So uh, high school, right? No, nothing, nothing arts, let alone film, right? I mean, I'm still going to the movies, right? But it's like... What were you going to school for? Uh, so, so when I went to Buffalo, it was pre-med, right? My mom, my, mo my mother is a nurse practitioner. She has a practice in Rockland County called Ensucasa Primary Healthcare. I knew that, but I forgot. Yeah. But yeah, so everybody listening, if you, even if you're in the, anywhere in the tri-state area, um, you know, if I'm going to do one plug here, it's going to be my mother. She's fantastic. Dr. Liliana Lopez. Yes. She's a family nurse practitioner. Um, Yes, she's a doctor because she has her doctorate in nurse practitioner. She has to. She constantly has to remind 
MDs of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but, you know, if you guys know anything about nurse practitioners, they're, like, really on the front lines, you know, of dealing with, like, family care um, holistically, right, the entire family. So she built her practice in Rockland County about five, six years ago, and since then it's kind of exploded, you know, it's expanded, right? Now they have an office. They started in Spring Valley. Not, then they opened up another uh, office in Haverstraw, which is still in Rockland, and we're about to open up. I say we because it's the family business. We're about to open up in Ossining, right? So it's it's really kind of catering. Ossining, Westchester. Oh. So it's really it's really capturing, um, or targeting, um, servicing rather uh, a immigrant Spanish speaking population in these pockets around in and around the Hudson Valley, right? So uh, she deals. She works with a lot of folks that are uninsured. And it's not only just providing medical care, but it's providing like almost like a cultural kind of empathetic, right. you know, uh, quality of like, you know, of care that is that goes beyond the body, right? right. So it's a custom tailored. Kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. I mean, she we, she sees everyone, but it's you know, in Tsukasa, it's in Spanish, right? It's like you know, you're at home when you go uh, see uh, see the physicians or or the nurse practitioners rather that uh, that work at at her facility. So. So, you know, she's doing it, you know? That's, you know? Like, I assume she was really busy during this time. Yeah, yeah. So COVID. it's crazy. Right. Yeah. So we'll go into that because there's a whole story there, right? And okay. it's all interconnected with, like, the film stuff that we worked on. Um, but, yeah, you know, like, we're a, fam- we're a tight-knit family that operates in film, in the entertainment space, my brother and I and my sister. But we also support quite a bit, mostly my brother now, uh, supporting quite a bit uh, with my mom's uh, uh, business. Uh, but yeah, the question is like, how do I, how, how, how did I go from, you know, high school, right, to all of a sudden in Cuba making this film, right? So, you know, my mom was, was a nurse at this time, so she was really promoting, like most, you know, immigrant moms go to law school, go to, go to medical school, right, become an engineer, right, like just like be a good citizen and do the right thing and I kind make of... Make good money. Yeah, make money, like yeah. be self-sufficient, right, and contribute to society, like my dad said, but more importantly, make your own money. So I went into undergrad and I did pre-med um, and I just was terrible at it. It was terrible. I, I wasn't happy. That's funny. That's the same thing with me in business. Absolutely. I, wasn't happy at all. I, was, I was like miserable, but I, but I stuck it out, right? Um, what I would do as a means to, to find a little joy in the process of pre-med, uh, which, was hum- which was very humbling and almost humiliating because I just wasn't that good at it, right? I was getting C's and barely B's, right? So I was like... I'm 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 pursuing this kind of fool's gold idea of like getting into med school with something that like I'm just not connecting with, right? I just it just didn't click with me, right? Um but I kept going. I, I and I kept retaking classes that I I mean I busted my butt, right? And I put myself in a position where I could find a way in, right? To med school if, should I choose to go in that direction. Um but it was exhausting and I was not happy. The one thing that did make me happy was when I decided to get a minor in English. So I was doing pre-med, taking all the science classes, the biochemistry, the calculus, the organic chemistry, the cellular biology, the e-bio. I took all those classes, man, you know, in Buffalo. And Buffalo is no joke when it comes to, like, the sciences and, you know, all these programs, right? So, so the one thing that, that gave me a little joy was that I would go and take like, an English class on the side. So I was majoring in biology at the time. I ended up graduating with, like, an, a medical anthropology degree, but I minored in English. And the English made me happy, you know, like the poetry, the, 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 you know, the Chaucer, the Milton. I mean, I was taking classes, Shakespeare classes, mm. 
in a fantastic program with enormously talented human beings. I mean, I was so happy in there. It was the Samuel Clemens uh, building. Remember that building? Yes, I do. And that building was close to the Center for the Arts. So I hadn't gone that far. So if, you, so if, you, if anyone knows Buffalo, if you guys can paint this picture, it's this massive, massive SUNY school, right, at the edge of New York. And what it did for me was that it provided me with an opportunity to pay low money, low tuition, but also feel like I'm getting the heck out of this town. Right. I wanted to go away, and I wanted to get lost in a school. You know, and it wasn't only a school. It was a university center, right? So, yeah. you know, uh, you had all t- different types of international students coming in from all over the world. You know, we, you know, there was a law school. There was a medical school. There was a dental school. There was just so many resources at that university. We, You know, University of Buffalo is the largest university in New York. It is. It is. You know, it's huge. Uh, that and Stony Brook, but I think it's bigger uh, than, than... You know what? I, I feel like we're talking about it as if we're collecting checks. <laughs> in which they, we're not. They but, haven't even invited me in yet. I have a gripe <laughs> about that. Because uh, I love the school. You know, I'm, I'm very passionate. There? You know who else went there? Who else went there? Weinstein. Oh, yeah. Harvey Weinstein. And, 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 and I have a story with Harvey Weinstein, right? Uh, which is something that's insane, right? Yeah, it's I mean, crazy. Like, yeah. you know, to, to be connected in, in that in that regard is, is kind of uh, shocking. But... Um, but just to just to paint a picture in terms of the landscape of the, the the school itself, right? The physical space, the engineering and sciences are on one end of the school, right? And it's almost like a half a mile long right. if you walk from one end to the other end. And the arts are on the other end; they keep them very separate. Mm-hmm. So, and the English department is next to the arts, so I would have to travel. And almost run sometimes to catch classes from the sciences that I hated all the way to the English class that was next to the center. I had never gone beyond the English building. If I would have gone a couple more steps, I would have ended up in the arts building, which is where I ended up later on, which wow. is the film program. So undergrad, I ended up graduating, graduating with a pre-med, uh, medical anthropology, with like an English minor. It was a mess. Like, I was so confused. Like, that doesn't even make sense now. I mean, but the anthropology major or minor seems pretty cool. Yeah, you know, anthropology was, like, the only thing that I could, like... It's like something you could talk about, you know, some good marijuana, it, <laughs> just, like, yeah. you know, I'm sure the books that you that you read were, like, amazing. They were deep, man, because, like, anthropology is a, is a weird science, but it was also the science... Again, I'm, like, at this point, I felt like I was scamming my way into, like, right. medical school. Yeah. So, like, I knew all, like, the tricks at this point, because I just wasn't doing... I wasn't excelling in the classes, so I was trying to find a way to get in through the back door in medical school, and I found I met a lot of really interesting people along the way because I didn't real, I realized that I wasn't the only one trying to like kind of break into medical school. It's also very exclusive, right? You have to have enormously high grades for these cra- crazy classes that I just wasn't prepared for. You have to like ace the MCAT, which is impossible, right? For yeah, people in my in my shoes, right? Um, and you have to do all this other stuff, right? Like intern and it's just it's just like you have to like essentially it's almost like you're campaigning, right. you know, early on. People are campaign campaigning for medical school when they're in high school. Right, yeah. So I got into the anthropology program and I realized the word at the time was that anthropology is like a cool and sexy degree and that cool med schools find it appealing. Okay. And like a person of color with that kind of, with that degree and like all these other cool little things around them may present me present me with an opportunity to get it. I mean, I was trying to scheme it. If anthropology was a person, how would that person look like? Like me. <laughs> like me. Like Okay, me. like someone that is... 
uh, knowledgeable about different cultures, right? Yeah, different because races, like races, yeah, ethnicities. So uh, right up, it go right up my alley in terms of filmmaking. I right? can I can see why med schools want that, right? Because a lot of doctors, are, you know, they're looking into more doctors that are able to sympathize, empathize with, with with people in in the hospital. You can't say, look, man, you're, so you have cancer, you're about to die in four months. Dude, it was you a trend. Have, okay. It was a trend that was like spanning all over the country where mm-hmm. medical schools were looking to diversify the energy and anthropologists or students that were going through the anthropology were, are more eclectic are more kind of like worldly right, right? cuz anthropology more can, personable more, more personable person- yeah right. and more social i mean there's 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 medical anthropology but there's also like cultural anthropology ethnomedicine comes from like holistic medicine i mean it's it's the people and i fell in love with my professors because these were professors that were living with indigenous tribes in like mm. brazil coming back with like crazy stories and right. those were so you notice how like I go into, and I'm thinking now, I'm reflecting, now I'm learning this, I'm kind of realizing this, I go into anthropology to find a way to get into medical school, and it feel, I almost feel like anthropology was the, the inspiration to pursue film. Okay. Really? Wow. Because I'm sitting see? there listening to these stories, so can and I'm like, I, I can see that on, on the screen. You know, but, but you know what's fucked up? If anthropology did that for you, right? Imagine if your high school had a really strong arts program. What that would have done to you? I would, yeah, I would have, I would have loved to make films in high school, man. Yeah, you would have loved from early. Freshman year, you would have been filming, you know, fr- frat parties. I, I, I yeah, I would have, I yeah, man, I, you know, but again, I, I don't regret it because it all makes. And when I say frat parties because Kevin and I were also part of the <laughs> fraternity, fraternity brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's great and and been so supportive, man. Um, right. Having that network network. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so like fast forward to I finished undergrad. Cuba, bro. You yeah, to I'm, gonna, I'm gonna get there. So <laughs> so I'm in. So I again trying to scheme my way. I keep saying the word scheme, but I'm trying to find my way the back door into medical school. It, it's impossible. My grades are like subpar, um, but I have all these other cool things that like make me interesting, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to like add more things. Right. So it was recommended. Um, I hadn't taken the MCAT yet. I was afraid to take it. And I didn't feel comfortable enough or confident enough to like start applying to med school. So I said, you know what? I'm going to redeem myself for the bad grades that I got in undergrad in the sciences. And I'm going to go back to grad school for the sciences. I'm going to get a master's in public health. It was like this interdisciplinary program that essentially was people were taking to get into med school. It was like that extra push that people needed. So um, I did it for a year. I go back to Buffalo. I did it for a year. I got an assistantship. I mean, I was getting hooked up. I, I was getting my tuition paid for. It was a good, good situation. And I felt confident that I, like, I, w- I was going to go through that program, enjoy it, and then go into med school. And after that first year back in Buffalo, I said, uh, I, I kind of looked in the mirror and I said, this is not for me. I was like probably 22, 23 at the time. I said, this is not for me. And um, that's when I started kind of exploring my interests in, in the arts, particularly in film. You know what? Good for you. You know, it took you anthropology. But through the writing. It took you anthropology, uh, you know, because I had the similar story. I went into school wanting to do business mm-hmm. because my, you know, my family were like, you need to get into business. You're going to make a lot more money. Uh, I wish it would have been an anthropology class that would have made me uh, transition from business to political science pre-law. Unfortunately, it was me getting arrested. In I know. I, I heard. I um, heard. <laughs> you know, that, that caused that transition. And I saw the exact results that you saw when you started focusing on something that you were passionate about, which was my GPA. Like, my GPA sucked when I was doing business classes, when I was taking business classes. Like, I was in there like, what am I? You know, imposter syndrome. Like, who am I? Like, I don't even know this person. Like, what am I reading? Like, there was no connection whatsoever to these, 
math, business equations. And then all of a sudden I got into like anything related to criminal justice, um, especially after that experience. And that experience also triggered me to think about my experiences as a young uh, as a young man growing up in Harlem. And I was like, oh, this is this is exactly what I want to do. And it wasn't it wasn't work when I had to like stay up late to, to study because I enjoyed the material. And that's what I wish for many of my mentees, you know, young brothers that I that I that I um, mentor, you know, is that what I wish for you is that you find what you're passionate about before I did. It took me two, three years in college for me to actually transition into something that I was passionate about. It took you close to, what, three, four years? It took me about five years, man. Five years. I went through four years of undergrad and then a year of grad school. And then that's when I said, you know, I, I found, and it was again, through the writing, I'm going to pursue filmmaking or screenwriting right. through my passion for, for, you know, the written word, right? So I didn't know what that meant. Right. But I, I, you know, it's funny what you mentioned, you know, you look at my transcript now and it's very schizophrenic. It's like C, 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 and then you got A's, 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 A's. It's weird. It's like, See, but you then, know. And, you know, we just fell, we fell into that immigrant bubble where it's like, no, you know, happiness. What's happiness? No, these are the things that you're supposed to do in order to provide for your family. Forget your happiness. Film? No, that doesn't make any money. Are you crazy? That's just for Sunday nights so that we can get to enjoy them as a family. But you're not going to go into that profession. You know, it's just, you know, when you think about it, they left their, you know, they left their country, whether it was Colombia, Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic, uh, and they came here for a better life. And that better life to them represented more money, stable living. And unfortunately, the arts or the way it's promoted or the way, you know, obviously you see when it comes to school, whenever there's a budget issue, the first thing to get cut are the arts programs, right? Um, there's not, we don't hear too many success stories. You know, we just, we just see the big ones, but there's so many people that try and unfortunately don't make it. So, you know, in wanting to protect you from that and in wanting to, you know, to make sure that you fall in a stable situation, they tell you to go to med school, business school, like you said before. Um, and it's, I, I hope, I hope with each generation we evolve out of that. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I, I know your beautiful daughter is not mm -hmm. going to have the same pressures that you had, <laughs> you know. Uh, I hope not. You know, up. like you say, you say that you're not, but like you mean well, parents mean well. Right, they're, of course. They're terrified of like their kids you know, um, not being self-sufficient or, or, or independent, right? right? So the easy thing to do is just to throw out blanket statements like do this, do that, and kind of indoctrinate you through that process. Spike Lee said it best when I spoke to him. I interviewed him once, and he said, your worst enemies are your own parents. Right. He said that to wow. me. Because your own parents, you know, are your, are your own worst enemies, you know? And he then proceeded to say that, you know, he was very fortunate that he had parents that really supported him right he had a mom who was a school teacher an arts teacher and a dad who was a jazz musician mm. and they so the thought that i'm literally regurgitating what he said to me he goes the thought that he was a black filmmaker back in like the 80s early 80s late 70s wasn't far-fetched right. to his parents but not many people have that not many people and he's very he's not he yeah he's been very um forthcoming about that you know because he knows that most parents are not right so that's, you know, and I gotta say, you know, my parents, you know, I, I credit them to so much, but um, I remember the moment where I eventually, eventually came out to my mom. It was weird. It's like I came out to her. I, it was like, like I sat down and it felt like I had to reveal this like crazy, you know, revelation. And it was that I was going to be a filmmaker. And I remember her, I took her out to dinner <laughs> to tell her this. 
I said, I, you know, and the reason why it was because... I hope it was a good dinner. It was, I remember, we went to a Japanese restaurant, and the reason why, it was because, um, let me backtrack a little bit. How did, the, how did the film career begin, right? So I come, I have this epiphany after my first year in grad school in the sciences. Remember, still trying to get into med school. Right. Um, shout out to my boy, Adafris, who uh, is a fantastic physician uh, here in Jersey. He was my roommate, so he was also on that grind with me, you know? Uh, he ended up going, you know, and he did it. He made it, and I'm so proud of him. But there was a moment where I woke up and I said, I looked at my, my, my roommate at the time and I said, dude, I don't think I can do this anymore. I want to I want to be a filmmaker. And he was like, go for it. You know? <laughs> he was like, go for it. And I was like, oh, shit, all right, what do I do? I don't know where to start. So um, it was kind of swirling in my mind. Uh, the big move for me was like to literally just quit the program that I was in and just come back to New York and figure it out. Right. Um, because I'm kind of like a school a student at this point, I'm kind of programmed to be in school. I was looking at like grad programs for film. And I remember having lunch in the student union. This is as, as the semester was ending. This is like now early May. I'm finishing up my first year of grad school, and I'm not happy. Grades are like also kind of like mm-hmm. weird, you know, teetering on like C, B average, right? And I'm doing the same thing that I did in undergrad, right? And I remember the Spectrum. Remember the Spectrum newspaper? The Spectrum of newspaper. Course. yes, the school newspaper. I, the school newspaper. I had written in undergrad for a little bit for them, but I open it up, and front page it says... Miramax Films donates money uh, to the Center for the Arts uh, to build a brand new film program, and they're giving money to minority students that apply to the program. Okay. I mean, like, I'm sitting there, and I'm like... And you're probably, like, the only minority person in the program. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm like, what? It's like speaking to me, right? Aside from, like, you know, what Miramax and Harvey Weinstein represents now. This is now 20 years ago, right? right? 15 years ago. I look at it, and I'm like... Is, is Miramax and Weinstein affiliated? So, Bob Weinstein and Harvey Weinstein, right? They built Miramax. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, Miramax Films that that's Disney crazy. ended up buying yeah, many years yeah, yeah, yeah. later, right? So, that's why the when when Miramax was sold... And remember, um, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, they're all done under Miramax. Wow. Right? With those two guys, right? Um, and I think either they grew up in Buffalo, or they have a connection. I don't know if they went to Buffalo. I don't know what the connection is. But they gave money to this program... Um, and, and, and I said, this is my opportunity to explore this. So I reached out to, I don't know who I emailed. I don't know who I called, but I got in touch with a woman named Linda Reisman. Linda Reisman was my, that's a pretty good memory. You're talking about what? 20 15, years ago? Yeah, 20 years well, so ago. I, I like graduated 20, t- 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, I'm lying. 20, 20 years ago. I know. We, we're adding more years. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'd yeah. say this is close to like... like 14, eight, 15 Yeah, 15, 16. <laughs> You're about to say eight. You're about to say years eight ago. years. Come on, man. <laughs> it's a long time ago, right? So, so I reach out, right? The hustler that I am. And I say... And I get an email back or a call back. And it's Linda Reisman, who at the time was the dean of this new program that they were building. It's okay. called the Master's in arts and humanities with a concentration on film and performance. It was a almost like the cousin of the MFA program. Right. Um, but it was centered around like industry. It was like there was an industry producer that was doing like a residency at the Center for the Arts in Buffalo and she had built this program and she brought money from Hollywood with Miramax. Uh, and she was building this program that started that summer. It was a year and a half it was, an, it was like um uh, essentially a, a kind of um, uh, expedited program. So I call her. She responds to me. She's like, she's very Hollywood, right? She's great, by the way. I still keep in contact with her. She's now the, the dean of uh, the film program at Emerson in Boston. 
I bother her so much. She's like my my first mentor in film. Uh, okay. I email her. Yeah, I email her like maybe once every few months, right, just to check in. She um, made her bones uh, in Hollywood. She used to run uh, Francis Ford Francis Ford Coppola's uh, Zotrop company. Okay. She produced uh, Assassination Tango. She produced uh, Jeepers Creepers. Remember that horror film? You know what? She um, produced Jeepers I Creepers. I don't watch horror films, but, <laughs> but I, I, I'm sure it. people know about this. Uh, she produced another horror film called Pumpkinhead. I mean, she's like big. She produced yeah. a couple of films, uh, called one film called Affliction with Nick Nolte. She's like an insider. Are you into horror films? I love horror films. I don't believe in horror films. No, you don't like them? Life is stressful as it is. <laughs> I don't know why I like them so much, man. I don't know. But yeah, all right, so... They stress me out, she, you're right. <laughs> they stress you out, man. Come was on. my worst one. So um, then you... So I reached she, out to her, and like, dude, the program's starting in a week. And somehow, some way, I convinced her to let me in. Really? So now, I'm in two master's programs. I'm in the public health program with my mentor on that side, wondering where the hell I am. And I'm, on, and I'm now in the film program. And I, and I got in trouble for that. Buffalo came to me and said... Because financial aid. Yeah. Doesn't that... No, no. So here's where it got tricky. I was getting money from, and I, we sorted it all out, <laughs> for the record. Disclaimer. Well, yeah. The disclaimer was that I had to quit the public health program. Gotcha. Because, fast forward, I was getting money from the Masters in Public Health program through mm-hmm. this incredible public health uh, specialist who now runs the epidemiology program in Oregon. His name is Carlos Crespo, Puerto Rican okay. cat, that loved me and took me under his wing. God bless him. He's a sweet guy. Uh, he gave me money. I was just, He's uh, like, damn. Yeah. All he, that work and dude, left the program. He literally said that to me over the phone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, no, I felt so bad. But anyways, I didn't even told him because he was like a father figure to me. I should have just gave him a ticket to one of your screenings. But you know what he said to me? He goes, he goes, I can't wait to see your film. There we go. And I don't know if you've seen any of my films yet, but I need to reconnect with them. But anyways, so so all of a sudden, I am getting money from the Masters of Public Health. Because my, my thing is, like, I'm going to do both. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do both. No, no, I believe you. You know me, man. I'm going to do both. But, it, but then here's where things got a little tricky. I ended up getting the scholarship from Miramax mm. on, um, on the film side. So now we're talking about Cuba. So all of a sudden, Buffalo finds out that the foundation office is finding out that I'm getting money from the public health side. Again, unbeknownst to me, I didn't know that there was, there was anything there wrong was with conflict, it. Right. Yeah, but then when they brought me in, I had to essentially make that decision, and I abandoned, and I left the, the public health program, right? So, okay. so long story short, now I'm, now I'm kind of focused on that. At this point, I told my mom, right? I had to sit down with her, and I said, I'm not in the public health program anymore. That means that I'm not going to med school. That means that this whole story from the last 10 years is done. It's dude. Think about this. Okay. I said it's done. She's like, "What are you gonna do? I'm gonna be a filmmaker." Did she laugh or did she cry? Dude, she said, "Ay dios mío." She put her head down. <laughs> she said, "Ay dios mío," like that, like under her breath. She did the cross She yeah, yeah. And my sister was right next to me, laughing, That's right, because she wanted to be an actress, right? Oh so God. she knew. She was kind of like commiserating. We were, we were breaking the doors down. Yeah, mind you, my brother, who's the amazing director, yeah. is in high school. He has no idea what's going on. Right. That his story evolves later. Right. All right? And so, the story was probably easier to, you know, for the family to accept because you you put yourself out there. Yeah, yeah, to an extent, you know, to an extent. Or maybe not. No, no, to an extent. To an extent, it was it was easier to swallow. Um, but John had to go through his his, his struggle, man. Okay. You know, like, yeah, because he went to business school as well. Right? Yeah, he's got a whole story, yeah, man. Yeah, so yeah. I, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll shed light on that, yeah, on that yeah. because his journey is incredible because it, we, we converge later on, he and I, uh, through LPZ. So, you know, I want to get to when you're having breakfast with Fidel Castro. Yeah, so Cuba... <laughs> So, um, so I'm in this program now. I get the money. For, I get some money. I don't get all. I get like 10, 15 grand from Miramax Films. 
Again, not necessarily Harvey Weinstein, but Miramax. Right? <laughs> no. right, let's just say, let's, let's make the disconnect here, please. <laughs> All right, geez. Um, <laughs> so, so Miramax gives me the money through the school. So, um, so anyway, so I, I propose that my master's uh, presentation, my thesis, I, and for the program, I could have either written a script, gone to like an internship in L.A., or made a film. Right. And I said, I'm making a film. Right. Um, and I partnered up with uh, a student from the Latin American Studies Department and the professor there, Jose Buscaglia, who oh, was wow. there. Yeah, I was there many years ago. Such yeah. a long time. Right. And, you know, we kind of connected the Latin American Studies Department with Linda Reisman on the film department. So Linda, the producer, loved the idea of like creating this like interesting uh, collaboration. Right. Between different uh offices and buildings at the school we got some press for it right uh, not only in the school but outside of the school uh, because it was pretty exciting right Miramax is funding it it's two Latin students grad students flying to Cuba with the U.S. Treasury Department approving it right because at the time uh, the Latin American Studies Department in Buffalo had a partnership with the University of Havana I had gone to a, a study abroad program uh, years back when I was an undergrad so that's how I connected with Buscaglia uh, and he and I. You had gone to Cuba. Yeah, and okay. I went to Cuba in 2001. So now we're in 2004, 2005. Yeah, yeah. I went there for the study abroad, just for the, just for a couple weeks in the summer. Uh, this is before 9/11, actually, right? So it was that year, and then I came back. Uh, so so it worked out, you know. Like uh, the school really supported it. We had we had permission to go as students to do research, um, but we didn't have permission to film, okay. and that was the one like caveat. That was the one thing that I had to be very aware of, um, because. For the young lady that was in the Latin American Studies Department, her thesis essentially was the film as well, but she was submitting essentially the script to the documentary, and I was submitting the actual film that I was directing. She was writing and producing it, and I was directing it and producing it. Anyways, long story short, we go out there for a month, and I never, mind you, never held a camera before in my life, never thought of shooting anything, never thought of directing anything. Remember, I got into film through writing. Mm-hmm. Writing is my passion, Right. Uh, and I'm just kind of reconnecting with that now, 15, 20 years later. So I go to Cuba. We come back a month later, and it was just like the most incredible experience of my life. I mean, get, think about it. I get to travel all over the island at 24, 25, shooting everything, filming everything, interviewing a bunch of people. Essentially, we come back with a story of, that on the surface explored. Um, the This is before Obama, of course, right? So this is, you know, kind of remnants of Clinton and now uh Bush there, right? Um, we were exploring uh, the social the social effects of tourism on the island, right? Mm-hmm. The social political influence, or essentially how people, how Cubans on the ground, are impacted socially and culturally by, the by all these foreigners that come in from outside of the outside of Cuba, uh, minus Americans, right? So it's like this huge wave of like Canadians, Australians, Europeans, Asians at the time, right? A lot of Chinese folks were coming in, Russians. So this like whole like vibrant culture emerged in the streets of Havana to cater to those, right? Everyone knows about the famous uh, doctor who doesn't work as a doctor anymore because he's making $17 a month in Cuba and rather do, he'd rather be a cab driver, right? So that's the, that was the, the, the context of Cuba at that time. Okay. And it still is to, in many regards, right? Um, again, I don't know what it is now, but at that time we wanted to kind of capture that. We came back and put together over that course of that semester a 30-minute uh, short documentary that we presented at the end of the semester. Uh, got my master's with that, master's in humanities and film. And then 
lo and behold, we submitted it to some festivals, and I got to travel around the country showing that film. So it was my first taste at, like, directing, meeting other filmmakers, seeing, like, the scene and, like, feeling connected to a community that I never had never been exposed to before. Right. So were that you was scared. Were you scared about possibly getting in trouble in Cuba at that time? Yeah, I mean, but at 24, you know, you kind of don't give a damn, right? You're like kind of, you know, you're gung-ho. Uh, I ended up just kind of filming anything and everything. You kind of right. talk your way out of certain things. Uh, the, the hard thing was to not implicate other people that we were with, right? So I think that's the biggest concern is as Americans, we can kind of get a we at the time, of course, and not anymore, right? Like Americans now are looked upon differently. We're not even allowed in certain countries right. because of the pandemic. But at the time, you know, you kind of walked around with a certain like gravitas, a certain kind of like cachet, right? Like I'm an American, I have a passport, you know, I'm, you, know, you can talk your way out of something. Plus I'm also Latino and I can speak the language so I can make friends, right? right? right. Uh, so, so, and also, you know, being Colombian for some reason got like a certain kind of response, right? Mm-hmm. Like that whole Pablo thing still kind of like, kind of like surrounded Colombians, right? Yeah, so yeah. so I would get like either a very like apprehensive response or like people love me, you know, right? Because right? right? <laughs> They assumed that you were hip to the game. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 oh, Colombiano, you know, like yeah. in Cuba, like, oh. Yeah. But um, no, but for the most part, it was cool. Um, we came back with all that footage. We pieced it together. We screened it. We shared it. And then I graduated. And at that point, like, I was like, all right, time to come back home, mm. right, to mom and dad. I'm like, tw- well, actually, my dad lived in Florida at the time. But I came back home to my house where I grew up, and I had to figure it out at that point. Yeah. yeah. And that was the beginning of the journey, I think. Right, yeah. And that journey was interesting because it wasn't like, okay, you come back and you start making film, right? Like, you have to, at times, you finance your own films, right? Yeah. So you do that by taking on other projects. Yeah. And yeah. you took so, on other projects and, you know, and I, and I saw, you know, this is what, you know, for that moment that we lived together, I saw you just banging your head, man, getting these projects done uh, so that you can be able to finance your own films. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the first one, I, you know, I would say. Yeah. Um, I think even before. So there are three films that we've made over the course of right. three years, right? Uh, ten years, rather. My brother and I produced them. John wrote it and directed them, produced them, and I produced them with him. Right. Um very, very closely together. Like, we built these films with our bare hands, right? So the first one was The Inquisition of Camillo Sands, which we made back in, like, 2014. Then Hudson Tribes in, like, 2016. And then recently Paradise City, 2018, 2019. So it's, like, almost, like, two, three years apart each film. But before that, there are years where I'm, like, just trying to figure it out. That's when you and I lived together in 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 that apartment. That's when... Anthony Sylvester kind of walked into my life. Anthony, right. who's a good friend of ours, a right. uh, uh, talented filmmaker from Philadelphia, now in L.A., doing some incredible work. You know, we kind of, like, met, you know, and, and, and you essentially build a community of, like, freelance, renegade filmmakers. And you, the key is not necessarily to make money. It's to just make stuff right. and to learn and to build a reel. And, it was and to cool. build a reputation. It was it was very romantic, dude. It was right. like oh no, it was super romantic. The starving artist thing. I always wanted to like say, oh, I didn't live. No, I lived that thing, man. You no, know, no, and you like, lived crazy. it. And me being a law student at the time, you know, studying, having to study for law exams, tort, and all these other types of law exams. Um, it was so intriguing. It was so fun, creative. It was so easy to get caught up in your in your my mess in your mess. <laughs> Because it was, I saw the reward, the instant reward of you creating something and seeing it, having something written down, then the next day actually seeing it on camera. 
and, and, and you have people there actually playing their role to this vision that you had days before. It's a, it's a beautiful feeling. It's a remarkable feeling. It's a, it's As a, a law it's, student, I was like, you know what? I can't, I can't get caught up in Kevin's mess, man. Let me, <laughs> let me just chill out, man. Let me, let me just distance myself because what you were doing was so... It was, it was just so... Like, what's the word I'm looking for? Encapsulating. It was, like you said, it was romantic. Yeah, yeah. And also, like, I felt like I was always... Um, I felt like I was always, like, rebelling against something, you know? It was, like, non-conforming, right? Right. Um, but let's, you know, let's backtrack, right? Like, let's be, let's be real. You know, um, I did the starving artist thing for a couple of years. Um, and again, thanks to, I gotta say, you know, much props and much love to my network in the fraternity, you know, with you, like welcoming me into your home and letting me like live in your apartment, you know, and we were roommates, you know, uh, finding an apartment in New York at that time was very difficult. Yeah. Right. Um, and and also connecting with other fraternity brothers that were also filmmakers, right? So that's where I connected with Anthony Hachinova and Enzo Martinez, right? And these are guys that, like, that were already doing stuff. They were photographers and filmmakers and cinematographers, and I kind of got wrapped in their world. Um, and I did that for a couple of years, and, I, and then I hit a roadblock. But I must have... So I, if, I, if I got back from grad school from Buffalo in, like, 2005, I must have been unemployed for those two years, just as a filmmaker. Right. And like around 2008, I realized that it just wasn't, it wasn't like, I, I wasn't, I didn't have the ability to sustain myself. Right. And I did not have the ability to like continue making art. And I think that was one of those big moments where like, and I'm sure a lot of like artists out there, independent filmmakers or, you know, the cliche starving artists can attest to. It's like, there's a moment where you can't even, you don't have enough money to pay the cab to get the set. Wow. That happened to me. I didn't have enough money in my pocket to get to my own set one time. <laughs> Dude, I had to, it was crazy. And like, that's when you say, all right, you know what? Like I need to, like, I have to listen to my mom and dad, right? Like, yo, what are you doing? You need, you need money to eat. And most artists are like this. You know, I think you can kind of sacrifice yourself, you know, yeah, for the greater no, good of the work. When I say you sacrifice fresh, you know, at the time, I'm not sure if you're, if you're smoking cigarettes, but at the time yeah. you're smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee. And I saw yeah. your face glued to that laptop many yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't healthy, right? And but luckily I was in my twenties, right? So right. I can like, I, I there was still time to 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 change, right? right. And I changed. Right. Um, and I think the beginning of that change was when um, one of my best friends, who's an educator in North Carolina, uh, Eric Sanchez. Well, you know yes, Eric. Yes. Um, shout out to Eric. Yeah, Eric, man. You know, hopefully he listens. To, I'm gonna share with him the link. Um, Got to shout him out because he, you know he was always kind of like guiding me or providing advice and even kind of like cheering me on like most of my close friends were doing but he would always just say hey man you know like become a substitute teacher like it's okay like i know this is not your career path but teach teach you'll be a great teacher so he kind of encouraged me back in like 28 to no, 2008 to uh explore that avenue and i was very fortunate i applied to the new york teaching fellows program yeah i, I saw a sign on the subway right and like you know where they promoted and i applied and i got in and all of a sudden this is when i was living with you I was a filmmaker by night and a special ed teacher by day mm. <clears throat> in the South Bronx, right? So that's when my whole education kind of journey emerged and evolved, right? So, so yeah, so that was very challenging because then I never slept. So you were teaching. You were also uh, working on side projects to, to finance this first film, Camilo Sanz. No. No? 
Was it Camilo Sanz was before that? No, Camilo Sanz is years years later, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Camilo Sanz was what, like two, three years ago? So if we can like time it out, let's say 2008, 2009, I'm teaching full time in the Bronx and I'm and I'm making films on the side with like my crew, right? Mostly with like Anthony Sylvester and some other guys, right? And for about three years, I'm making a living as a teacher and kind of using all that money to live, pay rent, and pay for my mostly music video projects, right? right. So, like, the music video budgets that were coming in are so, were so small that I would eventually have to kind of, like, tap into my own money to get these right. films done, or these yeah. projects done, right? Which is crazy. And right? also, like, the bartering system. I remember with... Uh, with folks, with trainers, right? You would you would do a video for them, and they were to train. Shout out to Danny. Shout out to Danny. Shout out to Danny. Fitness, you know, yeah. gave me my first camera, right? right? He gave me my, and that's the thing. We needed. I, I didn't have the money to buy these pieces of equipment, right? I just renting and bartering with other filmmakers wasn't cutting it, uh, and I made a deal with a local trainer, you know, who became a really good friend, and he bought a DSLR camera, seven D at the time when Canon's when the digital kind of revolution kind of emerged, right? right. And uh, the deal was he, I would use a camera. He essentially gave me the camera if I just shot videos for him. Right. And we did that for years, yeah. you know, and we maintained a relationship ever since then, you know. Yeah. Talk uh, about resourcefulness, you know. Yeah, no, and like Started. he needed the stuff, I needed the stuff, you know, and like you just right. kind of make friends and you make connections like that. So, right. so you know, the question is how do we get to Camilo Sands? So as I'm out grinding. Which is, which is your first film, right? My first feature film, again, that I produced and John wrote and directed, right? So John's the director of those, right? But we made it through LPZ Media, right? Our, our production company. Right. So as I'm shooting music videos and teaching, mind you, I kind of spin my teaching gig uh, to work in my favor. Uh, what I ended up doing after that first year of teaching, well, during that first year of teaching film, because I was literally going to work at eight, seven in the morning, and I would leave from work teaching a special ed class and go to a set or go film or go edit somewhere. So I would take my gear with me to school, to my to my classroom. And this is a special ed self-contained eighth grade class, right? Uh, low functioning, right? Um, in a very high needs community, uh, right off the two and the five train. Um, beautiful kids, right? But they, they're just like very low functioning. We ended up making films. We ended up like, take, they because they saw my gear there and they were like playing with it, right? So we started like, I started integrating filmmaking principles to like math and ELA and social studies and we started doing skits and this class kind of like again suddenly kind of you know uh, responded again lot, a lot of mistakes were made you know because I was just kind of learning as I was trial by fire that's how I learned how to teach but the kids responded and they started showing up and and I, I really broke ground with, with many of them right, right through filmmaking and the administrators at the school peeped it they saw the benefits of, of bringing this kind of art form to students they asked me the next year to streamline it throughout the school. So ever since then, I've just taught film for the city of New York. Mm. So I only taught one year as a special ed self-contained teacher. And every year since then has been teaching full-fledged filmmaking to kids from primarily like high needs communities. Right? right. So and that's, you know, that took me on an incredible journey as well. But, you know, kind of balancing that. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Was there someone that was doing something similar to what you were doing before you got there? You know, again, like teaching these students how to like do film or an arts program. So I felt like I was kind of siloed in my own little world. I didn't know anyone else okay. doing this. And then as word got around of right. my successes, the um, the other schools in the surrounding area started like lobbying for me and like interviewing me. So then that's when a principal over at Soundview in the Bronx hired me to build a film program at his middle school. So word started spreading that there was this Latin guy 
you know, Lopez making yeah. film, uh, 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 teaching film in some of these like uh, kind of underserved high uh, middle schools. It was a middle school. And then that's when I got the attention of the arts office for the city of New York under Paul King, you know, who just passed away not too long ago. And Peter Avery, shout out to Peter Avery, he's a good friend of mine. He's the theater director for the city of New York. He's a he's an arts theater director for the entire city. Right. Uh, he came in and kind of took me under his wing and he said, hey, what you're doing in film, we should be doing throughout the entire city. So that's when I got invited to do like professional developments. That's when my name started like growing within the education space. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure they saw so many benefits, you know, and developing I, creative problem dude, skills I mean, through the arts. I, I've made a lifelong, you know, career out of like advocating for film arts, you right. know, and, you know, to, to where it's taking me. I became the teacher at Sinatra, right. now at Art and Design. And now, and now through your production company, you have LPZ Cinetech. Yeah, that's sponsored by the HBO, you know, so it's like my world as a filmmaker and film teacher, they can't live without each other. Honestly, I think that I would probably would have been, no, I know I would have been a different person if there was... We had an arts program in my high school, right? Um, but for some reason, I didn't really gravitate towards it. Mm-hmm. If I would have gravitated towards that, look, I'm more of a visual learner to mm-hmm. begin with. You know, I fall in love by by vision. You know, I, I learn by by what I see, um, and I think it would have definitely helped me in the development of my language skills, social skills, decision making. You you're, know, a you're lot more. It. You know, just easier. You know, not easier, but more confident in taking risks. You know, and like you said, your father said that he not only took you to see movies, but he explained to you the many different angles on how to interpret that movie. Like, what that does for you in life is priceless. I mean, I, I literally bang on people's doors and go up on my soapbox and literally say what you just said. It's, you know, in education, it's all about, like, Danielson framework and Bloom's taxonomy. It's like, how are you reaching these kids at a high level. It's always about high-order thinking, critical thinking, right? And at the apex of that pyramid is creativity, right? right? So high-order thinking, critical thinking leads you to creativity. And filmmaking, I mean, I think all art forms provide you with that outlet, but filmmaking in particular forces you to kind of really tap into both sides of your brain where you're logistically kind of uh, uh, um, alert, Right. Uh, but you're also creatively in tune, uh, and you have to do that simultaneously. I mean, to be able to kind of allow students to grasp that and to learn skill sets from that, like I tell my film students, like there's only going to be a handful of you guys that are actually going to make films or make stuff. The rest of you guys are going to do other stuff, but you're going to use the skill sets you learned here. Right. You you dealt with Murphy's Law. Right. I teach Murphy's Law in my class. You know, like going into life knowing that, yo, Murphy's Law is ahead of me. There's a pandemic there. There's, you know, social unrest there, but I can find a way to adapt, to move, to, to help people, you know, to be successful. Filmmaking certainly taught me that. Of course. You know, and I'm teaching my students uh, that right now. Um, but again, I want to I, I get to Camilla Sands, right? So as I'm growing as a film teacher, I'm still kind of playing with the filmmaking, right? But there's this weird balance where, like, some things get really intense on the education side, where I have to kind of, like, distance myself from the film production side or vice versa. The summers, for example, when, te- you know, when teachers go on vacation or, like, get to enjoy and, like, hang out at home, those are my chances to go out and make stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So I never stopped working during that time. Mm-hmm. And during this time, my brother is watching me, is learning, is observing, is being inspired by things that he's seeing, not necessarily from me, but just by the things that are happening he around was, me. He was getting caught up just like I was. 
Yeah, man. I mean, <laughs> to I'm, seeing you work and seeing you know what you were doing, the things that you were creating. And, and mind you, my brother, uh, you know, superb athlete, right? That if he were like two or three inches taller, two inches taller, would be a retired millionaire right now, right? I, I without a doubt, you could ask anybody. He went to Don Bosco Prep. Look it up. Don Bosco Prep, two thousand two, was number eight in the country in football. It was his team, and he was he was one of the best players in the state of New Jersey. But my brother is like me. He's, you know, he's 5'7", five, 5'8", five, right? But an inch or two taller, you know, NFL, right? So, and I'm saying that. He's, he has that intensity, and he, needed those, he needs those challenges in his life. So when his football career ended, when he, like, walked away from it, he immersed himself into business. And he worked uh, for a finance firm. Right. He worked, uh, you know, he kind of, like, did the entry-level jobs. And, like... You know, I talked to John, you know, and he says, hey, man, you know, like something was missing. And that's when he found film. You know, he found it through the stuff that I was doing. And at that point, that's when everything in my life changed. Everything changed in my life. And I have to credit John for that. Because if it weren't for John, I personally would not have had the audacity, the strength, the commitment, the dedication uh, to pursue a feature film Mm -hmm. with nothing. Why is it? It's just like, it's so hard. It's like to like sit down. Like I was having trouble making music videos. Yeah. I mean, we know, we know tons of filmmakers that are like enormous filmmakers that are very successful that still haven't made a feature film. I talk to filmmakers that are like making a bunch of money that are super talented filmmakers that do commercial work. And they're looking at me and like they're saying they think I'm crazy because mm-hmm. I've made three feature films with, with right. John. So that's when John said, you know what, man? And I, and I credit to John because he's so intense. He's like, dude, you know, he said to me, uh, and at this point, John left his job at, uh, at the finance firm that he was working for, and he took the leap into marketing. And he went back and was getting his MBA during that time. So at this time, he's getting his MBA. He's now at Gray Advertising, right? He's in a better place now because now he's more in the creative space. He and I are now collaborating on, on projects together. We build LPZ Media with the help of... Uh, couple of LUL guys, right, that helped us, like, form the company. Uh, shout out to Dennis. Shout out to uh, um, um, uh, Pauly. What's uh, Pauly's brother? Lenny. Lenny. Yeah, shout out to Lenny, you know, frat brothers that helped us out many years ago, right? And, um, and uh, at that point, it was always with the intention of saying, let's go for the feature film. Because the way we saw it, and I don't necessarily agree with this anymore, but it's a very intense and kind of uh, fatalistic way of looking at things. It's like... If you're not making films, then you shouldn't be considered a filmmaker, right. which I think is BS, right? Because uh, you know, filmmakers—it's such a—it's such a—it's such an interesting world now that it's like you—you. You, there's so many formats, so many mediums now, right? But at the time, we were like, hey, you know, we have to go for the feature film. How do we do it? So you know, he brought in some money. You know, he put in his like savings from the finance stuff that he did. I brought in some money, right? Not as much as he did, right? I got a credit to him because he like said, let's do it, and then and then we put together our collective resources in terms of talent. All the people that I came up with on the music, music video side and all the people that he, came, that he was working with at Gray in the advertising space, we brought them together and we shot in August of 2014 for two and a half weeks in Jackson Heights and in Astoria and in parts of Harlem, our first feature film, The Inquisition of Camillo Sands, non-SAG, non-union project, right? Uh, with just friends from college, right? Camilo Sands was uh, uh, the lead actor. His name is Francisco Narvaez, who went to school with John and Stony Brook. 
the other lead actor, uh, Kareem Savignon, who is a trained actor, uh, professional actor, you know, did us a favor and jumped on. He's a friend of ours from Buffalo. Shout out to Kareem. Shout out to Kareem. Shout out to Francisco. And uh, we we banged it out and we finished it in about two years and HBO bought it. Mm-hmm. HBO Latino wow. bought it, man. HBO Latino. Mm-hmm. Shout That's out to amazing. Leslie Cohen, you know? Yeah, yeah, shout out to Leslie Cohen. Yeah. Would you consider Camilo Sands to be a film about the Latino experience? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, totally, All right, so, totally. so you consider that, obviously, because there's immigration issues involved yeah. in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, both actors, uh, the main actors are like, well, for everyone. the most part, everyone's everyone, Latino. Everyone, everyone. Um, and do you think that you felt pressure? Do you think it felt you felt pressure in having to create a film that spoke to the Latino experience as a so, Latino director, producer? Yeah, no, no, that's a great question because, um, you know, we're, John and I, obviously, you know, we're Latinx, right? Latinos, right? Colombian-Americans. Um, John was born in Colombia, actually, right? So, and we're very connected to our, our extended family in Medellin and in Cali. My dad lives in Colombia right now, you know? And we grew up going back and forth to Colombia, right? So... Uh, you know, my parents spoke Spanish at home. I still have the Colombian accent, you know, because we lived in Colombia when I was very young. I was born in New York, and then we moved back to Colombia. Um, and then, you know, after a couple of years of, of living there, things got a little crazy. This was like during like the 80s when like Medellin was going through the, the yeah. difficult time. So many people, many families fled, you know, at that, that time. It was just like not a, the quality of life there had changed completely. So we moved back to the States. Um, and uh, so long story short, um, you know, to, to answer your question, you know, kind of like taking to taking Spike Lee's philosophy, you know, and, and making films, it's like film what you know, film what you know, right? So mm-hmm. we obviously know about the Colombian community. So we decided to, you know, make a Colombian kind of centric film in New York in Jackson Heights. Uh, we, we grew up going to Jackson Heights all the time, right? So we were always very inspired by that part of the part of the city, very vibrant, very eclectic community. Um, and uh, and at that time, Obama was really pushing for uh, legislation surrounding the Dream Act. Mm. So it was like we didn't make a film with the intention of kind of catering to a certain voice. We just made a film about a story that like we were passionate about, right? It was a story about you know one thing that John always says is that you know he wanted to re he wanted to c- create a new face or paint a new picture on what the illegal immigrant experience is like. So Francisco is Colombian, but he's very phenotypically white. Right. Uh, so we were kind of kind of flipping that prototypical cliche stereotype kind of on its head. Um, and also we were, I certainly was very annoyed with this whole victimization of Im- illegal immigrants, you know, that you tend to hear in the news. We wanted to show a very visceral and an honest and real uh, experience of, a undocumented person that has been here his entire life uh, who considers New York or the States to be his home suddenly being told by the system that he's got to go for the most part we're not going to respond very well to that right so we created a story of a guy uh, rebelling against that rebelling but also rebelling after he worked hard to fit the American Dude, prototype he, he was living the American dream and then he gets told to leave he gets right. told to leave and he was doing fine right before the right before he, he he was told right before he was told to leave he had a good job good job you know, he was a law-abiding citizen yep. right and then all of a sudden survival hits 
you're being told to leave. You have to hire an attorney. You're, you know, uh, all of a sudden your job fires you because they find out about these deportation proceedings, right? And that's it. You become this other person. You become, you're forced, you're pinned against the wall, you're cornered, and you respond, you know? Um, so the film explores uh, the legitimate routes he takes to um, uh, essentially appeal the, the process and also his non-legitimate uh, strategies that he's kind of like, by, by you know, some of survival instincts kicking in, what he has to do in order to uh, evade deportation, right? So he does it all simultaneously, and it's just a crazy story. Uh, the, the hero's journey, watching this character kind of like de-evolve, right? We kind of throw, you know, we make fun of Francisco a lot because we kind of throw him through the meat grinder in the film. Uh, it's just a guy going through hell. Yeah. For two for an hour and a half. He has to go to some freaking mafioso to, to get yeah, some money. To yeah, yeah, yeah. So make things happen. <laughs> Funny story. Remember that scene? What? Which scene? <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, that's in your. So, oh my god! So you you asked me to ask my mom who was, you know, she was. Uh, god bless your mother, please. She, I my god. She held a position a in the building. A saint. Where we were living, and uh, you asked whether we can whether you can use the basement. As uh, one of you know, as a location yeah. for a specific scene, scene. Yeah. so uh, you know she loves you. I didn't specify the scene. Though, you right? didn't specify the scene. <laughs> she loves you. She thinks She's you're so a little nuts. Oh, man. but we all do. But we still love you. And she said, "Okay, no problem. Just make sure that um, everything is fine. No one, you know, no one gets killed." Yeah, of course. And you said, "Okay, I promise you that no one is going to get no killed. No one will die. I promise." So she said, "Okay, no problem." <laughs> so. You know, I remember she calls me that day that you're that you're um, that you're doing the scene downstairs in the basement, and she's like, you know, I'm hearing a lot of noises down there, and um, I don't know what's happening. Has Kevin spoken to you about what they're doing down there? No, I don't. You know, I, I think you were him, out of town. Yeah, I was out of town, so I was like, look, I don't know. Just you know, go downstairs and check for yourself. And she, at the time. Uh, my stepfather, she tells my stepfather to go down there and check. Yeah, because your mom didn't come down. Your mother, yeah. My mother did not go down. So he goes down there and check, and checks. He opens the door to this basement, and the first thing he sees is a naked woman running around in pantyhose, smoking a cigarette. He goes back up. And my mom asked him, is everything okay? And he was like, yeah, everything's perfect. I actually, you know, so, so let me provide some context. Yeah. It sounds terrible, right? I actually, he came down and I walked him around. I introduced him to everybody. Right, 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 right. We had, it's a, like a legitimate production. This was the, the brothel scene, like the climactic brothel scene in it Jackson Heights. It was a brothel Heights. scene, right. So obviously we had some actresses there. It was a closed set. Right. So obviously, you know, the, the location manager, you know, the people that own the location obviously have access. But it was a closed set. I remember we had the the um, uh, representative from the mayor's office come in, and he. So I was very proud of what we had created. Right. Uh, and if you guys ever watched the film, it's on Amazon Prime. It was on HBO Latino for a couple of years, and it did the rounds there. But you guys can all watch the Inquisition of Camilla Sands uh, on Amazon Prime. It's yeah. for rental, or if you have Prime, I think it's free. Uh, but check it out. It's the brothel scene. It's like a really climactic moment in the end, and uh, uh, it's a uh, pretty epic. And the you know to say that we ourselves with like just a couple of like PAs and art director, you know, um, uh, and a couple of like, you know, again, just like very ragtag crew. Um, you know, we, we created an environment, dude. We created an environment that I think is one of the scenes that 
really resonates from this film. Right. I mean, yeah, obviously very provocative, yeah. but we wanted to create this kind of like, we wanted to showcase the um, notorious red light district that certainly exists or existed in Jackson Heights. And if you can imagine a Colombian loan shark mafioso guy running it, it's got to look a certain way, right? So in this scene, Camilo Sands goes and, and confronts the bad guy. Right. It's funny how he responded to that brothel scene. Yeah. He went up to my mother and said, oh, yeah, everything is perfectly no, no, fine. No, no, no. And you know, I love him. I remember, what's his name again? His name is Ugo. Shout out to Ugo. 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 No, it's so nice. And, right. and, and my job as a producer, right? So think about it. As a producer, the last thing I want is your mom freaking out. Oh, right, right. No, or no, the tenants freaking out. She was fine. And I told so, her afterwards, and she, and she laughed about it. And she also saw the film, and she really enjoyed oh, it. Oh, no, it's amazing. And yeah. it, so I remember Ugo coming in, like, very, like, apprehensive and, like, hesitant. Like, what right, the right. hell is going on? Because there's so many people there. Remember, right, there's right. a lot of crew people there, a lot of actors. There's, there's actresses that were walking around. They weren't fully naked. They were just topless, right? Um, so, you know, I had to walk him in and show him that it was extremely legitimate, you know? And I introduced him to John and... You know, again, it was like the set was hot. It was a hot set, meaning that it was in motion, right? So obviously when we cut, everyone puts their shirts back on and stuff. Right, but right. the idea was that we had this... So let's talk about Alvaro. Yeah, Alvaro, Alvaro Rodriguez, uh, the, the actor that, that blessed us with his like, performance and his presence in this film, is, uh, is one of the most humbling things in the world. And, and I, I got to credit the Colombian Film Festival here in New York that kind of allowed us to connect with these incredible actors from Colombia. And we found this one actor uh, who was getting a Lifetime Achievement Award a year back before we shot Camilo Sands. And uh, we were just having, like, drinks with him, celebrating, getting to know him. And there we pitched the idea to be the bad guy in Camilo Sands. And he shook on it. And a year later, he's here in New York with us filming this film, mm -hmm. you know? Um, that just shows you, you know, like, just have a vision, have an idea, and don't be shy to, like, talk to enormous talent you know you it really comes down to the actors that 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 are willing to kind of embrace these roles so no it was great man you know but there's a lot involved right because you're you're talking about talking to these uh actors having them buy into this vision that you have also talking to them about money and how much you're gonna there's so much that goes into it there's art there's business there's well with, with alvaro here's a funny story with alvaro so with alvaro uh he shakes on it right and he says i'm gonna be your bag i'll be the bad guy in your film Right. He's like, I love you guys. You know, <laughs> we're like surrounding him at the bar. And he's he mind you, he's getting the Lifetime Achievement Award. Alvaro Rodriguez in Colombia is one of the most acclaimed theater novella actors in like in the last like 20 years or so. Right. He's one of them. And we're at the Colombian International Film Festival here in New York um, that's sponsored by the embassy and by the consulate. And they're giving Alvaro an award. And uh, <laughs> John and I essentially like corner him. And we just, like, start hanging out with him. We start buying him drinks. He's, like, having a good time. He agrees to do it. And a year later, we have his flight booked. We have his hotel booked. We've already arranged everything with him. And it's, like, literally, like, two weeks before shooting in here in New York, he's flying in from Bogota. His manager calls me. and She says, I don't know who you guys are. None of this, none of this is happening. He ain't going nowhere. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no contract, no, no nothing. Like, I don't know what the heck this guy agreed to. It's not happening. So then I had to, like, I was like, oh, my God, we just lost Alvaro. So I had to get into a whole negotiation. You know, and in the end, Alvaro, the artist, the actor, you know, puts his or her foot down. And, yeah, you know, they got a little bread out of it, you know, and, and, and rightfully so. Even there, right. even there, right. um, I would have given the guy all my money because he, mm. he, 
He, he makes the film. Job. He did he, an amazing job. You know, and John, you know, later on says, you know, knowing what he knows now as a filmmaker, and again, these are little gems that John, you know, kind of like shares with me and I share with my students, is that, you know, when you have an actor like Alvaro, when you have your Jack Nicholson on set, it's okay to change the script. Right. It's okay. So he said in retrospect, I, he, he said he would have written five more scenes with Alvaro. Really? And just let him just run wild. And that's what you see in Paradise City. That's funny because... That's now what you see with Paradise City. And I'm sure that happens a lot whenever a director sees an actor after the fact, after writing the script, and they're like, wow, that actor should get more lines. Yes. Because he's hammering it. He's killing it. He's right. just driving it, you know, and... Uh, yeah, that's right. Well, thank you, brother. Yeah. And, th and where's this wine from again? So we're having a really awesome wine. Uh, my wife and I love this wine. It's a Cabernet Franc from uh, Long Island, from the North Fork of Long Island. Uh, it's uh, made, harvested uh, out in um, uh, in Mattituck, I believe. This is called McCary, McCary uh, Wine Vineyards, and uh, the Cabernet Franc is my favorite, my favorite uh, grape. Um, but yeah, yeah, cheers, man. T cheers, brother. It tastes wonderful. I appreciate it. Yeah, cheers. Thank you for having me, man. God, we've been saying so much, man, and like I, I know I deviate quite a bit, and I... that's fine. No, most of it is my fault. Don't worry about it. Mm. But um, but yeah. So all right. So you get this actor, and Camilo Sands happens, and HBO takes an interest, and now you're thinking. So there's... what? What are you thinking? So there's a story Second there. Film or what? So here's the story. So the story is. That and again, you're part of this story, right? Because right? you've been you've been so supportive, and you always advocate. And and uh, when you're out talking to folks in your network, you know I appreciate Charlie's always been um, forthcoming about the stuff that we're doing, just to kind of put feelers out there, right? So we make Camilo Sands, first film we've ever done. We don't know what to do with it. Film festivals are not taking it. Everyone's rejecting it. Sundance. Right? I mean, we, we thought we thought we, you know, we thought we made it. Like, we got over Mount Everest. Entourage. Like, we Dude, got, I, we're going to Hollywood, man. We made a film by ourselves. Right. And it's a good film. And uh, all we of a sudden... We invited ourselves to Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, Sundance says no. Tribeca, everyone just says no, 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 no. Like, and we're like, oh, my God. Like, nobody liked this film. It was heartbreaking. Heartbreaking, man. Because you just killed yourself for this thing for two years. So John and I looked at each other and said, all right, what do we do? Do we sit around and like feel sorry for ourselves, or do we make the next one? And we said, "F it, let's make let's make Hudson Tribes. Let's make the next one." So, so at this point, I quit my job. Mm. I'm like, "All right, we're going in," you know. And John quits his job. He quits Gray. I quit um, uh, Sinatra, right? The the school system. And um, we go back to Rockland County, where our mother has the house. Uh, and we build a, like an office, a headquarters in her basement. And, uh, we get Javier Aguirre, who is my, my brother, my boy from, uh, Buffalo. He produced my, my Bolivian cat. He produced, um, my Cuban, my Cuba film mm. while we were in school. And he okay. also produced Camilo Sands. So we got him back out and he ended up moving in with us in my mother's house. And we essentially fine tuned the second script that John wrote. He works on it, and we perfected Hudson Tribes. They went through a couple of rewrites. He and and uh, Jesse Custodio, right, who goes by Samuel Clemente. Okay. Again, John had a co-writer for Camilo Sands. Shout out to Jesse, uh, awesome, awesome artist from writer. Brooklyn, right? Brooklyn, Park yeah, yeah. Slope. He lives in San Fran now. Right. Works for an ad agency. Um, 
he wrote Camillo Sands with John, and then he wrote Hudson Tribes with John. And Hudson Tribes um, does two things. It allowed us to lean away from the Latinx story, right. which is something that we deliberately wanted to do. Of course. We didn't want to get pigeonheld as like these Latin, Latino filmmakers, right? We wanted to show range. We wanted to show that we are American New York filmmakers that can explore anything. Anything. So we decided to, to, to explore... Um, Which can encompass the Latino experience, but not always. 100%. Right. Good point. Yeah. Uh, so, so we decided to, to, look into, uh, to look inward and explore some of the issues that were happening in our hometown of Rockland County uh, that really kind of like emerged while we were in college, right? So I didn't necessarily grow up with this, uh, with these issues. It was there, right? It was kind of festering, but then it really kind of like exploded many years later around um, the misappropriation of funds in East Ramapo uh, that was essentially led by a primarily Orthodox or Hasidic school board uh, that was being accused of um, essentially, you know, kind of funneling money away from the public schools that are essentially uh, catering to black and brown kids and using some of those taxpayer dollars to fund their private schools, the yeshivas, right? So this is a phenomenon that not only uh, was explored in Rockland County, it's certainly been all around like Long Island, Jersey, but it, for some reason, it got national attention in Rockland County because I think that the level of corruption, not only within the Hasidic community, right, but at the local and state level, was just so obvious. And the, the enormous disparity between these communities um, kind of warring with each other, right? The, and all high-needs communities living in one little pocket, right? right? The Haitian community, black American community, the immigrant community that suddenly emerged, right? And then this huge, huge Hasidic and Orthodox community uh, that, that was growing there. They were all fighting for, like, scraps. Right. And the Hasidic community essentially did what, they, what, what, what was in their power, democratically allowed to, legally allowed to do, which is kind of, take care of their own, right. you know, they uh, organized, they organized, they, school exactly, they got, they got, they, they got the, they got the elected offices, they lobby, they campaign, and boom, all of a sudden this thing happened where, um, uh, you know, it, it got national attention where, you know, it was being explored even by like some podcasts like This American Life, that was one, that was something that really uh, struck a chord, uh, where some um, podcasters and some journalists were exploring, uh, uh, this 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 tension, right? And and, it, and I remember the New York Times wrote something that really struck me. It was uh, they called it East Ramapo was a tinderbox ready to explode, mm. ready to explode. So John and I said, all right, you know, we can either make a documentary about this, or we can make our second film kind of based around this within the context of this melodrama that's unfolding in real time. Right. Let's make the film about what's actually happening now in the actual town. Right. Right? Like, I was, like, super excited about this. Which is crazy because then you have to think about the local tensions, uh, you know, especially if members were involved in local politics, had local school official positions, um, they were probably going to come out and try to, like, shut shit down. It was rough and tough all around. It was, uh, we called it our Battle of Algiers, famous film, um, French film, that was, um, I forgot the director's name. Um, Fuhrer, Furman. Uh, but anyways, the Battle of Algiers is um, a film about a French uh, a French director actually films 
the struggle in Algiers while it was actually happening. So it has a very verite and... Journalistic. Yeah, but it's a narrative scripted film with actors, right? It's a classic film. So this was our battle of Algiers, right? We were going to go into those towns where it's actually happening and bring out actors and, and, and cameras and make and dramatize it. And we did that. And we did that, man. And um, as a producer, it was um, very exciting, but it was also, at that point, one of the, up, up to that point, one of the most enormously stressful and challenging things I've ever done in my life. Right. Because not only the content was so provocative and so tense, uh, and word got around fast that we were making that film, but also... For some reason, I thought it would be easier to make a film in upstate New York uh, rather than in New York City. Remember, we had commit made me Camilla Sands uh, uh, two years prior. Yeah, Jackson Heights, right? Yeah, and the reason why, for obvious, it's like logistically you're dealing with less people, less variables. There's less traffic. There's more space, right? There's like, plus like this is my hometown. I have like, I feel like I have a stronger network up there. Right. And then I realized that, you know, Making an independent film in a city like New York is a godsend. And I'll tell you why. One of the things that, like, this city has done, again, I hope they don't change that kind of effort in light of uh, COVID, is they've, they've been very film-friendly in this city. You know, from, from Giuliani to Bloomberg to, to de Blasio, okay. the Film Commission office. And shout-out to Aaliyah Jones-Harvey, who's a friend of mine who works uh, as the education director there. Um, they've been very uh, accommodating. And, you know, the way it's very streamlined. It's like, if I need to get a permit... I need to go to one office and I get one permit and that applies to the entire NYPD or the entire kind of, you know, jurisdiction, right? Uh, going up to Rockland, I had to deal with like 20 different towns, 20 different mayors, 20 different municipalities. Like I had to deal with it with like the laws that apply to this little town as opposed to, it was crazy. We got no love from Spring Valley. They didn't want to let us shoot anything there. The mayor was like, hell no. Literally yelled at me on the phone the two couple of days before shooting. Literally on the phone with the mayor of Spring Valley at the time, yelling at me. We got mad love from the town of Haverstraw. Why was he yelling at you? He knew that. We knew what we were making, you know, and he was like an aggressive dude, you know. And again, we circle back to him later on, and he ends up uh, helping us. Okay. Yeah, yeah, later on. Uh, when we had to do our pickup shots, right. at that point, um, I had a, con- a very candid conversation with him and said, the film's almost, the film's done. You know, like, either you help us or you don't. You know, you should help us, you know, so we can speak highly of you. So I'm going to speak highly of him, you know. Uh, um, you know, uh, he, they, they helped that, that town, Spring Valley, ended up helping us at the end and, and made the film that much better and that much more genuine because we got to finally film in that town. But for the first couple, the first principal photography, which happened in the fall, which is beautiful, we shot in, like, like peak fall season in Rockland County. Um, it was all the surrounding towns that let us film with the exception of East Ramapo. So we did a lot of shooting in Haverstraw, which is enormously poetic because it's the town next to the river, right? So we, I mean, we start the movie with that drone shot, right? Um, We shot an enormous amount of, like, we shot almost all of our, like, government buildings in New City, which Mm. is, like, the central county offices. They, They hooked us up. Mm. You know, that's where the cops came in and I shut them down, you know? That was happening in front of the Rockland County Courthouse. With like three hundred extras, mostly dressed as Hasidic Jews. You know? So, so there were many phone calls that you had to make in order to be able to film in those buildings. It was, it was. I was essentially even having to train certain towns that had never had anything filmed there before. So I had to like connect the dots with. So, so a lot of them didn't even have the experience to like give no. you the, the green light. They didn't even know how to give us the green light, or they were charging me an enormous amount of money. So you know what? You just pretty much had to like figure this shit out. 
Murphy's Law. Murphy's Law. Fuck. Yeah, man. Like Nyack, for example. Dude, everyone knows everyone knows Nyack, right? Yeah, bro. Like you can't have a full time job and do this. No, no, it's crazy. It's crazy. You know, that's why I had quit. I had to quit my job because that's like, why. That's why you know, like like the. Uh, like, you know, when people say, oh, this guy's a filmmaker, people assume that he comes from a, a wealthy family. No, like, no, 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 Like, someone's paying his rent. So, no, no, no. I mean, we, but, you know, for an independent you filmmaker, you know, look, give you a whole life. Look, Kevin, and you've sacrificed a lot, and I say that life. because uh, you could have chosen a traditional route, you know, and, and you've done really well, but you took risks, and what you would have enjoyed in your 20s, you're now enjoying it in your 30s, in your late 30s, and your 40s, 40, yeah. right? But you could have enjoyed that a lot sooner if you would have not taken that risk or those risks. Yeah, yeah, you know, but, but, I, but I, you I don't know what? change it. I, this is what, this and I know is you my, wouldn't. I know you yeah. wouldn't. Yeah, bro, you got stories for days. Yeah. You know, you should be in that fucking commercial, the most interesting man <laughs> with your fucking beard. Oh, know, my God. With Dosanki right here, man. Because, no, 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 like, no, no, you have stories for a lifetime. It's because you lived it. You know, and, and thank you jokes. for giving us an outlet to like share these. Because like, when the heck do I have an opportunity to to speak like this? No. I mean, I mean, you have been in the news talking about Hudson Tribes, bro. Relax. I have. <laughs> like this guy right here trying to be all humble, bro. You've been on local news, na- I was, national I, I, I news. I was, I I was invited know. by a Verizon Files to sit down with a journalist and talk about it, and then they took it down. Let's be real. Yeah, and I had you're talking about, about you're talking about yeah. you know. Latino, you know, you had Latino um, characters, right? You have black characters. Yeah. It's almost like a like a, a modern version of Crash, right? If you will. But yeah, we, there's... You know, there's so many different aspects to yeah. it. You, you provide so much different context through these different characters. Yeah. And, you know, even though the members that the movie shows as taking it... You know, not advantage, but like using democratic means to pretty much support their own community were Hasidic Jewish, uh, you know, members, right? But the protagonist himself, the one that kind of saves the day, if you will, is a member of the Hasidic Jewish faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, What was very important to us is, um, you know, we weren't necessarily trying to tell other people's stories, but we wanted to um, provide a snapshot into uh, the different communities that were essentially clashing all in efforts to just protect their own. Everyone. Right, everyone. Right, right. Which is everyone human nature. Just, which is human nature. I mean, that's what's happening now during the pandemic. It's like you have to do whatever you can to protect your own and obviously do it through legal and democratic means. But even there, human nature kind of guides us in a way where we falter. Right. We make decisions that are at the expense of others. And, you know, one of, the, one of our lead actors said it best. We were on set, and um, we were shooting this very, very provocative scene, which is one of the scenes that we get criticized for. I'm sure we do. Which one is that one? The one in the, the torture scene, yeah. yeah. And um, and again, Hudson Tribes on Amazon Prime. Please watch it. You know, it's a film that was done with the utmost sincerity and love for my for my community and for yeah. all people, right? Um, uh, what, I was what, a producer what, on that film. You were an so, yeah, so it's a producer, my gosh. <laughs> Shout out to that. If, if it weren't for Charlie's support, man, we wouldn't have been able to get it done. Honestly, stop no, it. No, seriously, okay. dude. Yeah. So, so I much. appreciate that, but yeah, so much. Right. So, so again, I'm gonna bring it back to when HBO bought uh, Camilla Sands, right? Because right. it, it has to do with Hudson Tribes, with what you're doing as a producer. But you know, we were on set, and and we had some folks from Tribeca Film Festival come in. Um, we invited them onto set to just see see what we were doing. 
part of the politics, right, of, like, making films independently. You kind of, like, try to court, you know, some influencers. And uh, I remember the actor, lead actor, uh, who is kind of enduring this, like, very hostile and violent scene towards him. Um, we cut we cut the scene, and he we introduced the actor, and he said something really profound to the Tribeca folks. He said, you know, what the Lopez brothers, what John's doing so great is that he demonizes everybody. Mm. Everyone is at fault here. Right. All the characters, even the ones that you think are good, everyone's bad. And it, and it's such a it's such an honest look into human nature, you know. Um, and yeah, you know, it's 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 the tough film to swallow. It's a tough film to sell. Uh, it's on Amazon right now. Like I said, we were very fortunate that the Orchard uh, picked it up, which is a pretty amazing, reputable distribution company. They're now ten ninety one media, but they were the Orchard b- before. But back to Camilo Sands, it was. Us on set filming one of the scenes during this three-week ordeal in that beautiful fall in Rockland County. <clears throat> Excuse me. That I get a text message from Charlie. I'm on set. I remember the day. Right. We're in the Knights of Columbus in Harrisstraw filming uh, the the scenes with the mayor. By the way, Godfrey, uh, the incredible comedian, plays the corrupt mayor of East of uh, Ramapo. Shout out to Godfrey. Godfrey's amazing. He got an amazing podcast too. Um, Again, brilliant actor. It was our first time working with SAG actors, with like professional actors, and it enhanced our journey as as artists. And uh, I'm on set, and I'm getting everyone ready. It's morning. I'm getting as a producer, I'm making sure that the food is there, that the actors are there on time, paperwork is getting done. And I get a text message from Charlie, and uh, he had met um, uh, a mutual friend, um, colleague, right, Leslie Cohen from uh, from HBO Latino. She was at the time. Uh, head of HBO Latino Acquisitions. She's now the VP of Acquisitions at, uh, uh, at HBO. Uh, and I, I connected with her uh, about Hudson Tribes. Right. And uh, she responded that same morning. I was on set. She said, I'm not interested in Hudson Tribes pretty much. Sounds interesting, but I'm not interested. We're only interested in picking up Latin-themed films. Mm. And I was like, oh. Right? So check this out. I said, oh, check yeah. out the trailer for Camilo Sands. Camilo Sands. Right? Which we thought was dead in the water. Right. We don't know what to do with it. Here's Camilo Sands. She writes back, oh, thank you. Boom. Camilo Sands gets done. Fast forward 10 months. 10 months. I'm having a meeting with John in Astoria. And Leslie Cohen calls my phone. Calls my phone. And I pick up the phone. And uh, she said, uh, what's going on with Camilo Sands? We're interested. Right? And that's where, you know, that's the beginning of that, that relationship with HBO. That's what's up. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and then at that point, we were finishing Hudson Tribes, right? So the momentum was going, right? So, so then we had HBO Latino. HBO, you know, it was great because, like, I would, I would, I, we would be finishing Hudson Tribes. I would come home and turn on the TV, and my, my movie was on TV. Yeah. yeah. It did two, three years on wow. rotation. I remember there was a there was a storm a couple of years ago, a snowstorm in the middle of the winter, and they shut down the whole city, and my movie was on at eight o'clock at night. Nice. Yeah, and I got an email from uh, the distribution company and said your the the, the the viewers the eyes on it were enormous. Really? Yeah. So that's exciting. You know, we made Camilo Sands, we got it out, and then you know several years later, you know, we finished Camilo Sands. Um, again, oh. we didn't get the we didn't get the 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 love that we wanted to. We got more love for Camilo Sands. I mean, we think it's because, obviously, the content of Camilo Sands is a little harsher, a little right. tougher. A little raw. A little raw. Overall, a little raw, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, we're dealing with 
hate crimes and we're dealing with anti-Semitism and we're dealing with racism and we're dealing we're dealing with we're talking about Hudson tribes now Hudson tribes Hudson yeah. tribes we're dealing with you know anti-Semitism yeah yeah, yeah uh, we're dealing yeah. with we're dealing with white nationalists white nationalists right I mean the film is rough I think I think but beautiful it's beautiful no listen I really not because I'm one of the producers but I I'll really, live and die behind Hudson I tribes I really enjoyed the film everyone that watched Hudson tribes uh, you know enjoy I mean that I told to watch and they watched it really enjoyed the film. Everyone at the screening enjoyed the film and I thought that they were really genuine about it. It was shot really well. Yeah. You had really good actors and actresses yeah. on it. I feel that you provided nuance in such a complex and um, tension-filled topic, but you did it in a way that provided that provided space for all groups involved, for all communities involved, and you did it in a beautiful way. So hopefully, you know, I'm not sure how you feel that it was received, but hopefully we get there as a nation where we will be able to uh, be able to like sit down and and enjoy this nuance without feeling so triggered. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think it, it'll have its moment. It'll have its, its, its day. You know, it's okay. going to be one of those films that... Do you think it's going to be soon, or...? I think it'll take some time. Okay. okay. I think it'll take some time. I, th I think, um, you know, the types of films that John and I have made, that John has written, directed, are so... Um, are so uh, intense and real and visceral yes and visceral yes um i mean think about it. the first film was about a guy getting deported and fighting that physically fighting right. it yeah uh the second film was about you know anti-semitism and, and, and a hate crime right that happens in a small town right and then the third film is what it's and the, film, <laughs> the third film is what <laughs> paradise city like honestly Kevin is wearing a black t-shirt right now, but you would think he's wearing like some army suit, <laughs> a militant, you know, with a fucking cigar in his mouth, but he's not. He's a, he's a regular guy. I am, I am. But his thoughts is... Uh... Yeah. No, you know, again, you know, again, I got to say, you know, these are John's, you know, thoughts and film right, ideas. Right. Shout out know? to John again. Yeah, my brother's brilliant. You know, he's he's out of his mind, you know, and, and he's more, you know, he's on a mission, right? And And me, my thought has always been like, I'm a filmmaker, so I have to do my job, right? I'm a, I'm a storyteller, so I'm going to do my job as best as I can, and, and I'm doing it with my brother, and I believe in these stories, and I'm emotionally invested, creatively invested, because mm -hmm. especially with Paradise City, since John wrote it himself, we, he didn't have his writing partner this time around, um, I kind of fell in, I, I filled some of those gaps, and... Man, what a journey. Talk to us about Paradise City. Man, what a journey, man. Oh, I'm living it now. Living it now, man. It's um so again, I'm gonna get this wrong, but if um sorry John, if you're listening, man. Um Camillo Sands was um proof of uh of concept, I believe. Um Hudson Tribes was like proof of like or or, or a showcase of craft. And Paradise City is our like showcase of style. And like art, you know, we we, I think it's like the closest thing to like an artistic piece that we could have ever made, truly, truly artistic, man. Um, and it's in black and white, shot in black and white. Um, we're getting like, 
the cold shoulder from Hollywood or from distributors because it's in black and white, literally telling us, you know, we can't accept a black and white film. When, like, Cuaron made Roma, that cleaned house at the Oscars recently. When you got films like, you know, you know, The Artist, you got, I mean, obviously I'm naming huge films, but, like, black and white films can truly resonate, man, especially in the time today, especially in the, in the type of story that we told. So, you know, again, Hudson Tribes, we're at that moment where, like, Hudson Tribes is not, like, really doing much. The Camilo Sands is doing the rounds already with, with, with HBO. Like, that's going to, like, we need to kind of move on from that. What do we do? We do Paradise City. It's going to be the, our trifecta, our trilogy, right? We used, we used to call it the, the Rotten Apple series, right? It, we don't, we kind of unofficially call it that. Um, but, yeah, we decided, you know, let's make a film in the Bronx. Let's make a film in New York. And let's explore... Um, another topic that's relevant to our zeitgeist, to our realm, to our paradigm as, uh, as contemporaries, right? Like we always say Oliver Stone had the Vietnam War that he uh, would reference and that would inspire his stories, right? We have the war on terror, right? I mean, and we have other wars that we're dealing with now, right? Like the filmmakers that are making films about the pandemic or about social justice, are like that's real. So the war on terror and that, that mixed in with... Uh, Black Lives Matter really kind of appealed to us, right? And how can we tell a story that essentially delivers a message from the LPZ kind of voice, right? From John's mind, right? And my support, right? Um, and so for our third film, it was very challenging, man, because we had run out of money, right? We had spent all our money on Camilo Sands and spent all our money on Hudson Tribes. And we had to figure out new and creative ways to, like, raise the funds and to move forward with this very ambitious project. I mean, probably the most ambitious thing we've ever done. So, you know, you just kind of set a date. That's what you do. <laughs> you're like, we're shooting on this date. And that's it. And you're like, oh, okay. Just show up. Just show up. So something's going to happen. <laughs> so, yeah, like, yo, we're shooting on that date no matter what. Right. And this is like, so we shot April, the first day of shooting was April 19th. If I'm correct, uh, 2019, no, 2018, April 19th was the first day of shooting. We shot for three weeks. Uh, but we were thinking of April 19th back in like November of 2018. We said, all right, so now we got to, now we got to focus on that. So we spent a couple of months, John and I, refining the script, hiring actors, raising money. It was crazy. And then April, April 19th, April, it's one of those dates, shows up and we had to show up. And we went to our first location in Astoria at a mosque, at a real mosque. Yo, they gave us they gave us the okay to film there. Dude. Did you show up that day or no? No, I didn't show up. To I don't know how I got that location. I had to, I had to really, really, really sit down and like shout out get to Sticky to Fingers. <laughs> Sticky Fingers is in the film. Legendary hip hop uh, artist, man. I mean, brilliant, brilliant human being. You know, um, that was just getting him was tough, right? It's right. like Hollywood, right? He's like yeah. the real. He's like the real deal. You know. I, you know, he's been in a bunch of great films, um, and he's a legend. I'm a hip-hop guy, right? I grew up listening to this guy. Uh, so we finally negotiated something with him to play, uh, uh, like, the bad guy of the film, and he is phenomenal. So we're very excited because the film hasn't been released yet, Paradise City. We had a, a private screening back in November okay. uh, to uh, some really great feedback and response from, like, you know, folks in our network. We, we screened at the Anthology Film Archive. It's crazy how pre-COVID, right? seems so distant, right? right? So we've had an awesome screening at the Anthology Film Archives, and then um, we fine-tuned a couple little things. We released some new, um, 
some new teasers. We're releasing some new marketing materials. We released a teaser that really resonated recently after um, after uh, George Floyd's death, you know, uh, uh, tragic death, and uh, it was a scene from the film where our our characters, uh, black characters, the Latino characters, um, are essentially humiliated, dehumanized by the police. Right. So the film explores kind of a fragmented and um, uh, vulnerable police system uh, when you have those bad apples that everyone talks about, right? So, so what happens when a bad apple uh, kind of uh, interferes or manipulates uh, and wields power uh, against a kind of vulnerable community? Right. Uh, and that's the issue, man. It's like this whole thing of like bad apples in the system. It's like, yeah, you know, I, obviously there are like great cops out there, but like you can't have a bad apple, Right. In that context, you can't. I know it's inevitable. It's human nature, but again, I don't want to sound too political, right? But I let my films be, do say my, you know, speak my politics, right? They speak. They speak loud. They speak, yeah, you know, through my through the art, right? But, um, but you know, the film explores, you know, how vulnerable any system, let alone the police system, is when you have one madman or a group of crazy people. See, and that's what I like about your films, right? Like your films forces us to reimagine different systems and uh i don't think i don't think the powers that be are ready for that uh maybe pre i mean maybe post-covid they are maybe post george floyd and massive global protests they may be but um i think you speak for a, a generation in the future and um, and I think you are inspiring folks to like really do what last prior generations didn't think that they were capable of, which is to rethink this whole shit, how fragile the police system is. You know, the safest communities aren't the communities that have the most police. They're the communities that have the most resources, you know, but yet, you know, we're, we're getting arts taken out of the budget when things get tight. Even more so now. And, and, you know, and my question to you is this. What society do you think we would be living in right now if, if we would have invested more into the arts, more into storytelling, if we raised our children to pursue those careers because the, the nation, the country actually made it easier for filmmakers to get their voices out there. Like, how do you think that would change what we have going on right now? Yeah, it's a great question, man. I mean, I, I, I'm an advocate for the arts, and I think that, and I know that I've seen the data, and I've seen uh, firsthand the benefits uh, of what the arts can do to a struggling school. I saw it in Soundview. Soundview Academy, and shout out to William Frackleton. He's still the principal there. Amazing guy. Um, when he brought me on to teach film there, I didn't even know this. I, I signed on the dotted line, and I said, yeah, I'll teach film in this school in the middle of nowhere near the water, right? Hard to get to, Soundview, right? And then as I'm going to the school, it comes out in the post that Soundview Academy is in the top five most persistently dangerous schools in the entire city of New York. <laughs> middle school persistently dangerous school. Top five. I didn't know that. He didn't tell me that when I, when, I, when, I, when I took the job. I could have told you that, bro. Dude. Dude. He brought in film. He brought in... Vi visual art was already there. 
but there was only one visual arts teacher. He brought in film, he brought in dance, he brought in theater, and he brought in music. And he transformed that place in one year. <laughs> what the arts can do for an entire community, let alone its kids, its children, is enormous in terms of cultural enrichment, intellectual um, growth, like we've talked about high-order thinking, we're talking about collaboration, community engagement. I mean, it, it, it enormously changes the fabric and the culture of a school, and it seeps into the surrounding towns. I mean, it really seeps into homes. When kids are finding an outlet and a, a, a way to creatively express themselves, you know, I always think of this one kid that, that you and I both know, Vaughn Thorpe, right? He's a kid that literally, literally is a filmmaker now, successful filmmaker, making a living, right, in the city, traveling around the country. Shout out to Vaughn. I just had a call with him yesterday, who literally said to me that filmmaking saved his life. Of course. He put down a gun and he picked up a camera. He literally tells me that, you know, and this is a kid that I met through the criminal justice system um, uh, uh, who... Um, who had contracted our, co our organization to bring film to kids that were struggling, um, that were in and out of jail. And this is like, what, almost five, six, eight years later, he's making films and, you know, doing his thing, right? So, so arts, not just film. I'm biased with film, of course, right? But arts in general is needed now more than ever right. in a time where people are isolated, people are depressed, Listen. people are, you know, dealing with... A, a new world where, um, you know, giving them the resources and the and empowering them with these, like, w with these ideas or with the, or the openness to explore their ideas through art um, is, is more essential now. So, like, again, you know how people talk about defunding the police and, like, there's a big controversy on that? People are talking about defunding schools and, and the first thing that goes are the arts. Right. The first thing that goes are the arts. The first thing on the chopping block are the arts and the implications to that are severe, right? Severe. Of course. of course, you know what? And I question whether uh, we, you know, uh, folks in our generation can properly assess how valuable uh, an arts education is, because we lived through hypercapitalism and uh, this slow abandonment of arts education just chipped away at the constituencies that might have defended the arts in the area, wow. right? Yep. So you know, I imagine the children from my era who are now teachers, right, but that were children in the 1970s and the 1980s, they may not appreciate art the way that it should be. Um, and this creates a whole generation of, of teachers and parents who have not had the advantage of arts in their own education. So how would you expect them to value it? I don't know. You don't know what you don't know, right? Hmm. And for many of us, we don't know what we haven't experienced. And we haven't experienced a really good edu arts educational system that would alter the way we think about the world, our communities, but most importantly, ourselves. 100%. I mean, the arts allow you to really kind of dig in deep. You know, Dude. it's very extrinsic, but it's also very intrinsic, you know. And I've learned, I've learned to push myself to the limits pursuing my art. And... You know, that in itself is a, is a luxury and, and a privilege and an honor, you know, to, to be able to have that, that understanding, you know. And I continue to push myself for, right. for the art, you know, for the arts, right, or for my, my passion, right. So, 
So, you know, I mean, I feel like everyone should have an art form in their back pocket that they can rely on. You know, from the doctor to the lawyer to the school teacher to the athlete, whether it's music, whether it's poetry, whether it's painting, whether it's dance. You know, there's got to be something that they can use to, like, release some steam or express themselves. Well, whether or not anyone else sees it, you know? Well, you know, uh, a good friend of mine, Dr. Boz Driesinger, she had traveled to different countries to explore their prison systems and see how, uh, you know, the, the correctional facilities uh, deal with their prisoners, right? And, and she found that in more advanced, uh, more progressive correctional facilities, in, in more progressive countries when it came down to the prison system, that they incorporated the arts, to rehabilitate these oh, yeah. prisoners. Wow. It's it's a shame that we haven't caught on to that. Yeah, I mean, th- those are like amazing case studies. Talking about rehabilitation, talking about therapy. Talking about right? therapy. Art therapy. Coping mechanisms. Uh, I mean, you know, and, and you, you made me think of, you know, a colleague of mine, V Bravo, who I'm working on a documentary right now with, um, who's done some work with the prison system. Uh, you know, he, one of the reasons why he and I are working together is why he was at Tribeca Film Institute. He was the education director there. He brought Tribeca to prisons in upstate New York. And he created a screenwriting program mm. where he allowed, you know, inmates, right, folks that are locked up, um, the ability to express their ideas and stories through screenwriting, right. through, like, seminars. And then, and then guys were getting out, and then he was helping them produce their films, and he hired me to produce the film that Naji was the lead in. Mm-hmm. She was the lead character in a short film that was made by students that I was supervising with my support that was written by ex-convicts, mm. supported by Tribeca Film wow, Institute. I, I did not know that. And then we showed the film to Oprah, and she like loved it. Really? And, then, um, and then the program got defunded. Crazy. So now V and I are working on some other things connected to that. We're working on a documentary called The Franchise about one of the, the, the screenwriter that wrote that, that short film. We're doing a documentary about his um, experience. And you'll find this interesting. And um, essentially the kind of prison industrial complex that lives in New York where we're connecting a couple of prisons upstate New York with a couple of f- a few blocks in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of blocks in the Bronx that are essentially that we found through some data that are feeding human beings to these prisons upstate. Wow. It's crazy. It's almost like the, the invasion of the body snatchers, right? Uh, so it's called The Franchise. We're, getting, we're, getting, we're, talk, we're in talks with some, fine, some funding for that. Um, and uh, the other film that we're working on right now is uh, the Chile documentary, The Chile Revolution. Um, v is from Chile, and uh, he was raised here in New York, and he went back in uh, October of 2019. That's when, like, the big uh, explosion happened where... You know, people went out to the streets in in Chile, and the government like struck down and fought back, and yeah. like really, really like. Are you gonna be on ground filming filming that? So I I wasn't there on the ground. Uh, they went out to film. I've been producing it remotely, um, but we are raising some funds right now for me to return, for me to go with the team in October, because October of twenty twenty is when we essentially kind of bookend the film because we're cat we're following the stories of four ordinary human beings that were tossed into the revolution. And have emerged as leaders. Mm. It's almost like the uh, the relent the relenting, reluctant hero, right? I love that story. The reluctant hero. It's like your brave heart, right? The guy mm. who did not 
want to be the leader. He doesn't want to be it, but something triggers something him. Something triggers him, and he, has, he gets thrown in, right. and he emerges. Right, the reluctant hero. So we have we're we're following these four incredible credible characters. Like the reluctant hero. The reluctant hero, yeah. And um, so we're going back in October. We're raising some money, right? So um, maybe I can share uh, some information on anybody that's interested in learning about the project. You can go to you can email me at kevin at lpzmedia.com, uh, and uh, or go to lpzmedia.com and see my information from there. Right. Uh, and if you're interested in learning more about the V. Docu- I mean, uh, the, the Chile documentary directed by V Bravo. It's called Primera, which means the front line, the frontliners that are fighting against the oppressive police. Right. Obviously, a very, very relevant story globally. Um, we are raising some funds right now to go back in October to get the last film. And, and we've gotten some good responses from our network, you know, our, our friends at Netflix and HBO and stuff. So, so yeah. It's good to know. You know, and you know, I'm passionate about criminal justice reform or criminal justice reimagination. And I'm sure you would agree, but. There has to be a way, and you and I, we've worked together in making sure that uh, we incorporate the arts in some of my clients' uh, criminal cases, right? And we've actually gotten their cases dismissed uh, because we were able to negotiate with the prosecutor that this person is into the arts and this is his way of walking away Mm -hmm. from a life of crime, right? And... In this art, he is finding reflection and so, you know, presenting documentaries uh, to the prosecutors so that they can show at their at their events, you know. Yeah, I mean, and, and these and these projects live. Right. They, they can be they can they can go online. They can go on social media. They can be used as as messages to uh, promote a certain cause. Right. And again, obviously, to promote the wonderful work that these professionals in, in, in law uh, are, are engaged in. Right. right. Um, it only benefits everyone involved, right? Um, and also, the filmmaking process is not easy, right? So it's like anyone that's kind of engaging in that process right. is inherently doing some self-reflection. Right. You know, we know someone, and I won't mention any yeah. names, uh, but he was able to get his case dismissed because he did a short, a beautiful short documentary about reflection, accountability, and uh, not wanting to end up like his brother, who I didn't know, uh, who was doing a serious time in prison. And the prosecutor really empathized with that. And she really respected that level of introspection from my client who had felony burglary charges and was able to say, you know what, you may have a future in the arts. Take this as a lesson. I'm giving you one chance. Go out there and pursue this this passion of yours. And um, It saved his life. It saved his life. So, again, what do you think about the arts becoming a tool for criminal justice, especially post, you know, massive protests. Do you think we're, or, you know, even in the state that we find ourselves in, which is, you know, New York is fairly progressive in spite of the fact that, you know, our police department just uh, publicly supported Donald Trump, right? But in this state, do you, do, like, do you see the, the arts police, becoming the, a The trend? police union did, right? Yeah, the, the, the police yeah. union yeah. supported Donald Trump. Um, which, which shows a huge disconnect between the police and actually the people in New York, which is largely democratic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's another, that's another topic. Do you see the arts becoming something that the district attorneys in this state, and hopefully nationwide, would start personalizing a client is always a good thing when negotiating with the prosecutor or the judge? 
to grant you the minimum. You know, when you're dealing with the judge, the judge has the authority to give you the minimum on the top charge. Sometimes you don't want the top charge for your client. However, the top charge may have a minimum, which is non-jail disposition. Sometimes that's what your client wants. So you're not only trying to like personalize your client to the prosecutor, but you're also doing that for the judge. So, you know, I, I, I think that this art form that personalizes a client can be extremely effective in getting favorable dispositions for my clients, for all criminal defendant clients. Mm -hmm. You know, because it shows a holistic perspective of who this person is and the struggles that they encounter on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. um, and especially when you're fighting against just a case log that just overburdens the court system, mm -hmm. prosecutors and judges. You need to find a way to be creative. Mm -hmm. So, like, do you think that's going to become a trend in this country? I don't, you know, I mean... I don't think so, man. Okay, you know, well, I, you know, it's unfortunate, man. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm making, uh, you know, a life of advocating for it. Again, I'm biased with film, but number one, who doesn't like a film? Who doesn't like films? Like your judge, your prosecutor, your right. corrections officer, your district attorney. Everyone likes films. I mean, I think most people learn. Yeah. Most people learn through the art of storytelling. Yeah. No matter what, you know, it, the filmmaking medium is an impressive medium. Just like right. any, like, 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 you know, if you can show me, you know, obviously if someone, if, if I see someone play like an instrument, like I'm impressed by it right away. This, right. The arts are in, in designed to impress and to raise eyebrows, right? So, so if you're, if you're stuck in a jam, you know, you can use an art form or you can develop an art form to, to, to help uh, kind of personalize your story you know i would argue most people don't learn through books yeah. you know most people learn through through storytelling yeah. through film why not allow this to be a way where people can learn from one another without a doubt i mean i mean we had film programs that connected with kids in the criminal justice system i mean i we've worked with those with that demographic with that population and and you know they respond very well to it right because there's, there's, you know, you're talking about young people that are like, that are kind of, that have been indoctrinated to believe or forced by their circumstances to um, align or to uh, depend on this crew mentality. Right. I mean, what, what, what are we doing on set with my crew? Right. I mean, like, I literally, literally contextualize it to these kids that are like, are accustomed to kind of living in a tribal kind of setting. Right. And I say, so am I. That's what independent filmmaking is. Right. You, right. You're in a tribe. You're in a caravan of visionaries, of artists, right. of nonconformists. Isn't that what, you know, these, like, crews are in the city? Right? These kids that are, like, you know, trying to, like, survive? Right. And, and get it in and, and trying to, like, move up in the world? Right. And, get, and get in trouble? So I, I, it's that whole concept. Put down the gun and put and grab the camera. You still shooting, right? right? I mean, I, I hate it to sound so cheesy and cliche, you know. Like Jay Z said, you know, I'm shooting at you actors like movie directors, you know. Mm -hmm. Like you can interpret that in so many different ways, right? And I think that, you know, like that kid Vaughn that I mentioned and some other students that I've, some other young people that I've worked with, have like truly embraced that notion. So let's say, let's say, I understand that not not all kids can become filmmakers. But the beauty of filmmaking is that you can find your role or your niche or your pocket or your area within the crew experience. Right. 
Right. You can be a hair and makeup person. You can be a cinematographer. You right. can be a sound person. You can be an actor. You can be a gaffer. You can be a grip. And that's what we're trying to teach kids right now is that, all right, this whole notion of like, hey, embrace the arts is great, but it might be a little archaic for people, right? right? Let's, let, let's explore the arts in a contemporary way. And what is the most, the most contemporary art form? The one that makes the most money. The one that everyone kind of gravitates to, right? Music's certainly there, but f- movies, films, right. visual, the audiovisual experience. That's what our culture, even more so now than ever in light of the pandemic, right? Where we have to consume media and films and shows and Tiger King and, you know, and all these shows that, that, that these networks are throwing at us. Now more than ever, it's a moment to say, you know what? There is a, there's a market for it. There's a need for it a ravenous need for it, let's explore this medium, right? And you can find your, your, your niche. You can find your specific passion within this space. Right. Does Hollywood have to let this voice in, or do you just break down the door? Yeah, man. You know, like, Hollywood is a castle that doesn't let anybody in. And uh, we're trying to break through, man. You know, like, uh, we call it the castle, right? So it's like through our programs, you know, through the Cinetech and through, like, arts educa- film arts education and the partnerships we have with HBO. Shout out to Jessica Vargas from HBO. Probably the most important person uh, in my life as an educator and even as a filmmaker, you know, uh, she's been such an advocate for film arts education. She's the marketing director at HBO Latino. Um, and folks like her, uh, there's some folks in Netflix as well that are supporting the idea of bringing in kids inside the castle walls, right? So it's almost like the Trojan horse. Right. We walk in with the Trojan horse, we open the doors, and the kids roam in there. And when I tell my kids, once you're inside the castle, it's your job to connect with people inside so that you can find a way to stay, right? Because then, then they can work up the ladder, right? They can work up the ladder, right? So we've, we've been successful. We've gotten some kids in there that are like now you know, production coordinators on big shows. There are now cinematographers that are, like, doing some great stuff. There are, there are people that are in, like, sound department, you know? So the key is to get those kids up. And they're getting older. So the, I've been teaching film for over 10 years now. You know, I'm 40 now. There are kids now that are, like, in their mid-20s that I hope can hire me for stuff. Right. Right? right. So, so there's a huge wave right now of kids of color that are, like, forcing themselves into the industry with the support of people like us, and people uh, here in New York that, uh, and partners with the, with the industry that are also people of color that are like opening up the back door for us. So there are windows in this castle and there are back doors, right? Not just the front gate. There are other ways to get in. And not only windows, I just hope that uh, film, through film, uh, you know, it becomes a mirror to society, especially in this country, of voices that have not been given the space to actually provide perspective, uh, multi-layered uh, you know, context in this country as far as uh, groups, um, ethnicities, yeah. uh, cultures, yeah. you know, because there's, there's many people that live uh, through this American experience and we're not all the same. No, there's, a, there's an article that just came out recently, uh, the New York Latino Film Festival uh, promoted on their Instagram. It's uh, in Variety, written by a guy named Carlos Aguilar. I literally just read it like a couple days ago. And it talks about the misrepresentation of Latinx filmmakers and actors, right? Mm. So it's behind the scenes and in front of the in front of the scenes, and it's 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 the fact that people are so confused with our story, 
right? They, they're so confused with our story in terms of like the diversity of our voices and our experiences um, that Hollywood essentially says that, hey, you know, uh, Latinx people are being are being represented because you have these iconic Mexican filmmakers uh, like Cuaron, like Guillermo del Toro and Iñárritu who are winning all these Oscars. Like obviously Latinx, the Latinx story is being explored, but people don't really understand that there's a complete differentiation between the Latin, the Latino voice that comes from outside of the country and the U.S. Latinx voice of people that are born and raised here with Latin heritage. Right. And that's the voice that's being neglected and omitted. Essentially my voice, mm-hmm. your voice, most of our voices, which is a huge demographic. Right. Like, think about the Colombian, Puerto Rican, Dominican, Mexican, Cuban, Guatemalan, Honduran, that are all born here. Our voice right now is not being heard. Right. By yeah. Hollywood in particular. And this and that's what I think. I think film, you know, can be used to uh, raise awareness and and in turn improve life, right? Art may not solve problems, but I think it makes us aware of their existence and in turn uh, help us find solutions and, and work towards an inclusive society, right? Boom. That's and, it. And, yeah. and and that's where I hope we uh, see a film uh, become this tool to give uh, the unheard voices but uh, I know it's getting late you got a wife and you got kids that you got to go to uh, so what I do typically is in the end of my podcast and you don't have to give me a full 12 right yeah but as an attorney you know um, if I'm preparing for trial I have to do this process called jury selection okay where I attempt to select jury members, right, that yeah. I feel would be fair and reasonable. Sure, yeah. So okay. that at the end of trial, it is those 12 jurors uh, that, I, uh, that I try to obtain favor from for the sake of my client. But if we were to substitute those 12 jurors for 12 spiritual advisors... Holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> who would they be for you? And I just want to know one simple reason as to why and it could be anyone it could be someone famous it could be someone local someone very close to you yeah which was really quick you know and if you can't come up with 12 we'll forgive so you. 12 people that i would need in my orbit i'd say uh like my dad right one right are you counting for me or no i am i am my dad i'll say my mother right okay uh why your dad why my dad? Because, you know, he's like a street poet, philosopher, you know? He is, he is. You know, and, uh, and he's very charismatic and he's just fantastic. Um, Call him a warrior poet. Yeah, warrior poet. My mother, because she is, you know, just, she's epic, you know? She's like uh, the most resilient person I've ever met. And okay. she's uh, a fighter, another warrior. Um, I'd say... Uh, I'd say, uh, you know, Anne-Marie, right, my wife, okay. uh, kind of like balances Shout me out. Shout out to Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie I, balances me out. Um, so I'd say, you know, my two kids, okay. you know, Luca and Alessia, right, because they remind me of reality. Okay. That, okay. that reminder every day. Right. And also an escape from this Yeah, yeah. This escape, life. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I never truly escape it, but it's more like, when I see them, I say, okay, that's, like, what's real. Right. Everything else is kind of, like, bullshit, you know? That's real. So I'd say Eric, my friend, the teacher, the school leader. Uh, I'd say, uh, you know, like, 
I, I watch a lot of like Stanley Kubrick stuff. Stanley Kubrick okay. is a, and I read his book. You know, I read two of his books. It's a great film. What about him? What about him? You know, he, he. I feel like you know he's still present. You know, he passed away a bunch of years ago. He did Eyes Wide Shut. He, you know, he's done. Uh, I mean, Clockwork Orange. You know, he's done so. I mean, so many epic films. Okay. Um, that uh, I've studied him so so much uh, through his films. Um, Full Metal Jacket, that he speaks a lot to me in, in, in the way I think as a filmmaker. Right. Spike Lee, you know, I'd okay. say Spike. Why, why Spike Lee? You know, because he said, F you to the world, and he says, this is my my story. Gotcha. Know, my story, right. and like, I'm irreverent, and I'm shameless. If there's anyone that I see in your stories, in your films, it's Spike Lee. Yeah, 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 my God. And I wish I, I wish he, you know, again, it's tough, man. Like, I would love a guy like Spike. I would love Spike to see my films, because I feel like he'll like, like them, you know? Right. Um, so Spike has has had a huge influence on me. Okay. Um, We're down to nine. Not have nine. Well, you have eight. We're have on eight. Nine. nine. I'd say uh, Peter Avery, the director of theater, has had a huge influence on me, and he still continues to do it because I I see what he's done in terms of connecting uh, school city kids with Broadway. Okay. Uh, he's a rock star in terms of that. Um, I'm gonna say two more guys that have had a huge impact on me. Different stages in my life. I'm going to say uh, you're one of them. And I'm going to say Nas, my fraternity brother Nas, Nassar, yeah. Not the rapper. No, no, no. Not the, although the rappers had some influence, but we have another guy named Nas, Nassar, who uh, is a fraternity brother of mine who's had an enormous impact on like my thinking. My thinking. So like the transition to become a filmmaker kind of was spawned through conversations with Nas in college. And then my my kind of irreverence and my confidence to continue it is with you, dude. You really? al- you've always, like, added... You've always added flame to the fire. You, you definitely don't put the fire out. You encourage it. No, I want I want to burn this shit down. <laughs> you do that. Dude, I mean, I had my 40th birthday. We hung out, and we were having that conversation, and I said, dude, like... Like, I've been, I, I I looked at you and I said, dude, I've been kind of like wilding out in the last couple of years. And you're like, dude, you have been. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it made me feel very good that you acknowledged it, you know, because I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to like to put to like, you know, ruffle feathers. That's what I'm trying to do right. artistically. Right. And that's how, that's how people are going to remember you by, man. You know, because, you know, from the beginning, you know, your first film was in Cuba. Mm-hmm. When, right, what's well, an interesting... Uh, yeah, right? Like, you know, my first film in Cuba. Your first film was in Cuba, and since then, you've just been fighting. But you've yeah. been fighting through the arts. Yeah. So, you know... But, okay, this was awesome. Please tell us where we can find you. So you can find us on Instagram, at LPZ Media. You can okay. find us... Uh, we, we also have a website, www.lpzmedia.com. Uh, those are the two best places to find us. You know, we're on YouTube, Vimeo. Um, some cool announcements pretty soon for Paradise City. Like I said, you can find Inquisition of Camilo Sands on Amazon. You can also find the Hudson Tribes on Amazon. Uh, take a look at them, compare them. You know, you'll see the growth there, the progression, and then hopefully you'll see Paradise City soon. We have a we have a special announcement uh, in the next uh, couple of weeks, uh, but I'm happy to announce it now, man. All right, I'm gonna Make do it. it. Happen. Let's this do is it. it. So we're doing. We're having the world premiere of Paradise City at the amazing Urban World Film Festival, taking place in September, September twenty second or twenty third, I believe. Very it's nice. gonna be a virtual film festival that's in partnership with Vimeo. 
Uh, but the whole world will be able to see Paradise City for the first time at a prestigious, black-led um, film festival that is sponsored by BET, HBO, Time Warner. It's a fantastic, fantastic uh, organization, and we're thrilled and honored to be sharing our film with the world, with Urban World. My brother, again, thank you. I appreciate you. I love I you, man. I appreciate the work that you do. Love you too, brother. Thank you, man. This wasn't that bad. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't. You're, you're probably very hungry, and you're definitely sweating right now. I'm sweating? <laughs> but I was on the hot seat. Till next time, man. Thank We'd you, love guys. to have you soon. Love you, man. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Bye.